Tales, and welcome to Frightening Tales. I'm Justin, the Ghoul Man, Red Man, <clears throat> president of the K Ghoul Horror Film Club, and investigator for Burgers. I am joined by the man with a 12th degree black belt and Pew Jitsu, and master flamethrower, Tommy Pew Pew. Um, Justin. I don't want to alarm you, but when's the last time you've been to the dentist? Because you're looking a little long in the tooth there. And they've been feeling a little sharp lately. I just went to the uh, dentist the other week. It was, uh, I saw Dr. Alucard. Man, I thought you were a Monster Squad fan. I am. Don't you know that Alucard is Dracula spelled backwards? Uh, right, uh, yeah, maybe I should have did a little more uh, investigating on uh, who I went to see for the dentist. Uh, I-, I just went off to, um, some recommendation by uh, some dude named Gil. Really? Gil? I'm about to pull your horror fan club card on you because that's short for Gilman. Dang, man, I-, I-, I thought you were smarter than that. Well, you know, I was having a little bit of problem there, and you know, Gil just happened to be around. Where were you? The beach? See? You should have known better. Well, that's all right. Even if I get a little long in the fang there, you know what we missed last weekend? What's that? Last weekend was Dracula Day. Oh, really? Dracula Day? Yeah, we completely missed it. I don't know how we did, but we did. You really need to start setting those kind of dates up on your your, your, your calendar there. Because uh, it's starting to get a little ridiculous. I'm just waiting for Wolfman Day, because you know how much I like the werewolves. Well, you got a uh, vampire problem right now, because uh, them them are looking more and more like fangs there. Have you tried to eat any pizza lately, especially from uh, your favorite pizza place? Well, my favorite pizza place doesn't put a lot of garlic. Oh, that's right. That's that other pizza place you don't like, but everybody else does. Yeah, that's correct. The one that I always say, hey, please don't put any garlic on the crust. I don't like garlic all that much. Well, you're about to not like garlic a whole lot more now. <laughs> hey, sh- should I be worried? Should I have to go out to the car and get my uh, my super soaker filled with holy water? I think you're all right there, Tommy. So let's go ahead and start into tonight's show. As you can guess it, tonight is all about Dracula. I mean, we definitely missed uh, the Dracula weekend, but we still... Every weekend can be Dracula weekend if we wanted it to be. So we have got a very special creature feature for you tonight. It's not even a movie. Uh, I don't know where I found this. Well, I know where I found it. I don't know where they found it. Uh, I think it might be an audiobook. But we're going to have two weekends of Dracula because it's going to take two weekends to get through our creature feature. We also got lined up for you the top five best actors who've ever played Dracula. I might throw in two of my least favorite Draculas as well. It is time for the K-Ghoul Horror Film Club Movie of the Week. We're going to start with Renfield. Yes, I finally got a chance to watch Renfield. I'm a little behind on my April horror movies, but Renfield was a pleasant surprise. It was better than what the trailer led on to be. In fact, I thought the trailer might have been the only thing that was going to be good about this entire movie. I'm not going to delve too deep into Nicolas Cage as Dracula because I'm going to save that later on for the top five Draculas of all time. Not really all time because we still got a lot more to go. But it's movie is definitely all about Renfield. It's not Dracula centered at all, which we were kind of hoping it wouldn't be. 
Uh, it's about Renfield's relationship with Dracula. He's tired of being in a toxic relationship, so he starts going to a group meeting. Now, one of the ways that uh, Renfield strikes back at Dracula is that he's not bringing him the pure innocent blood because it's the innocent blood that brings Dracula back to full power. So there's how Dracula survives throughout the ages. The hunters show up, they kick Dracula's butt, Renfield nurses him back to health, and in the process he's abused, mentally abused, sometimes physically abused, by Dracula. And so, you know, Renfield's finally tired of it. So he starts attending this uh, AA-type meeting where all these people that are live in abusive relationships and they try to get out of them. Now, he's not really there to escape Dracula. He's more or less there to find victims for Dracula. And what I mean by victims, he's uh, taken out uh, the people that are attending the meetings. He's taken out their problems by bringing their abusers to Dracula as food. Of course, Dracula is not all that excited by this food. In fact, he says, you're bringing me garbage. And basically saying garbage in, garbage out. Dracula doesn't really know why Renfield keeps bringing him garbage. Renfield keeps playing, dude, we live in a modern world. It's much more dangerous. The people are not as pure as they used to be. And that's when Dracula starts to list off his demands of what he wants. Now, along the way, Renfield is at a club. He, he's just kind of making a list of things and just trying to get his order, his life in order. And walks Aquafina's character, Rebecca Quincy, who is an NOPD officer. Which, by the way, the best part of this movie, or the best jokes in this movie, is when they start poking fun at NOPD. Because NOPD has had a long, long line of corruption. Uh, and not just today, but way back in the 80s. The corruption was rampant. In fact, the joke back then was, if you wanted to take crime off the street, you needed to get rid of NOPD. Now, it is still a very crooked organization in this movie, and it's funny when it's kind of like revealed, and Quincy, she's like, that's no surprise to me. So that was probably the best joke in there. I mean, us people who live, you know, for those of us who live close to New Orleans, we get the joke. Over there, it's kind of more of a, or for other people, it's probably a, an unsuspecting plot twist that the whole organization is corrupt. Now, if you really wanted to see a movie, um, well, in this particular, in Renfield, the NOPD is so corrupt, it's actually more corrupt than the NOPD you find in the uh, Dennis Quaid movie, The Big Easy. Some of the highlights I really enjoy of the movie is that uh, the bugs. When Renfield eats the bugs and he gets his little, he gets his powers. It's pretty fun to see. Now that now this is where the movie starts to push from comedy horror to action movie because the action sequences are well done. There, you you got some great moves. You got them fighting. Renfield takes hits. Uh, you even level the playing field, and it's entertaining when it comes to the action scenes. Now, I know Dracula is the central villain to this movie, but Isabella Rossellini as the drug pen or the drug queen pen, she was phenomenal in that spot. You know, she she truly owned her scene, and especially when she starts putting her son in place. So that's a great, great little spot there. Now I don't want to give away too much more of Renfield because this is a fairly newer movie, and even though you've had a couple weeks and you know my spoiler alert rules, I gave you plenty of spoilers anyway. You definitely should check this out after 
listening to tonight's frightening tales. And that concludes the K-Ghoul Horror Film Club movie of the week. Definitely check in next week for another pick that I have for you. You want to hear that one. So we're going to go ahead and start our creature feature for tonight. This is Dracula. Jonathan Harker has arrived in Germany on his way to Transylvania. He innocently believes that his objective is to finalize a property purchase in London with one Count Dracula. Mr. Harker soon discovers that he is the unwitting subject of the forces of good and evil. May 1st, 1897, Munich. As we prepared for our drive, the sun was shining brightly. The streets were full with gypsies bargaining their wares, and in the air was the joyousness of early summer. Herr Delbruck, the maitre d'hôtel of the Quatre Saisons where I was staying, came down bareheaded to the carriage. Ah! Mr. Harker, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Herr Delbruck. You are going for a drive, I see. Hmm, and I trust a tour of your countryside will prove as satisfying as the lodgings you provided. You are too kind, mein Herr. It is always a pleasure to serve a gentleman. If you will excuse me, I must have a word with your driver. Johann appears a capable horseman. He is a peasant, mein Herr, and peasants live by their fears. But... He is obedient. Johann, comes to here. You are mine here. Johann, remember, you are back by nightfall. The sky looks bright, but there is a shiver in the north wind that says there may be a sudden storm. But I am sure you will not be late, for you know what night it is. You are mine here. Do you understand what I am saying to you? Yeah, mine here. Good. Now go. And be on your guard. We drove off as Johann started the horses at a quick pace. In a short while, we had cleared the town and were driving in the German countryside. Johann seemed anxious and nervous as he drove the horses. I could not help but feel that it had something to do with Herr Delbruck's reference to this being some special night. Johann? I say, Johann. Mein Herr? Tell me, Johann, what is tonight? Tonight is Walpurgisnacht. As Herr Delbruck had said, the peasants live by their fears. In preparation for this visit to Count Dracula, I had made a study of local customs and beliefs, and it served me well. Valpurgis night was no simple matter to this man. According to the belief of millions of people, on this night the devil was abroad. And on this night the graves were opened and the dead came forth. All evil things of earth and air and water held revel. And will the dead walk tonight, Johann? 
Meinherr? I asked if you believe the dead will walk tonight. To speak of it is dangerous, Meinherr. Ah, Johann. To be afraid of such witches' tales is foolish. And what is it? Do not fear the beast. What's that you say? Nothing, Meinherr. It is a saying of peasants. Why, yes. Of course. Johann drove the carriage at a strong pace, although there was no apparent need to hurry. Every now and then, the horses seemed to throw up their heads and sniff the air suspiciously. On such occasions, I often looked round in alarm. The road was pretty bleak. We were traversing a sort of high, windswept plateau. As we drove, I saw a road that looked but little used, and which seemed to dip through a little winding valley. It looked so inviting that even at the risk of offending Johann, I called for him to stop. And when he had pulled up, I told him I would like him to drive down that road. He made all sorts of excuses, and frequently crossed himself as he spoke. No, no, please, my dear. There is no time. Well, Johann, I want to go down this road. I shall not ask you to come unless you like, but tell me why you do not like to go. That is all I ask. Please, no. The sun will set very soon. Was that a wolf? It sounds like a wolf, but yet there are no wolves here now. No? Uh, do wolves come so near the city? The snow and the wolves come together to the city. But it's barely summer. Perhaps that was not a wolf. The sunshine passed away. Dark clouds moved rapidly across the sky and a breath of cold wind seemed to drift past us. It was only a breath, however, and more in the nature of a warning than a fact, for the sun came out brightly again. Johann looked under his lifted hand at the horizon and said, The storm of snow... He comes before a long time. Johann, tell me about this place where the road leads. It is unholy. What is unholy? The village. Then there is a village. No. No one is alive in that place. But you said there was a village. There was. There is. I see no village. Where is it? Here, in this place. Hundreds of years ago... Many died and were buried in graves. Then from the graves, voices called, and there were sounds from under the clay. When the graves are opened, there were men and women, rosy with life, mouths red with blood. And so, to save their lives and their souls, those who were left fled away to other places where the living lived and the dead were dead and not, not dead. Not dead? Not dead. He trembled as he spoke. It seemed as if his imagination had got hold of him, and he stood in a perfect paroxysm of fear, white-faced, perspiring, trembling, and looking round him as if expecting that some dreadful presence would manifest itself there in the bright sunshine on the open plain. You are afraid, Johann. You are afraid. You may go. I shall return alone. The walk will do me good. I intend to see this village, and I assure you that Valpurgis Night is for fools and peasants and does not concern Englishmen. Ein man ohne Angst ist ein Tor. What's that you say? Only a peasant's blessing, mein Herr. 
as Johann turned his horses toward Munich, I leaned on my stick and looked after him. He went slowly along the road for a while. Then there came over the crest of the hill a man, tall and thin. When this man drew near the horses, they began to jump and kick about, then to scream with terror. Johann could not hold them in, and they bolted down the road, running away madly. I watched them out of sight and then looked for the stranger, but I found that he too was gone. I turned down the side road through the deepening valley to which Johann had objected. There was not the slightest reason that I could see for his objection, and I dare say I tramped for a couple of hours without thinking of time or distance, and certainly without seeing a person or house. So far as the place was concerned, it was desolation itself. But I did not notice this particularly until, on turning a bend in the road, I came upon a scattered fringe of wood. Then I recognized that I had been impressed unconsciously by the desolation of the region through which I had passed. The ground I passed over now was much more picturesque, and overall there was a charm of beauty. I sat down to rest myself and began to look around. It struck me that it was considerably colder than it had been at the commencement of my walk. Also, a sort of sighing sound seemed to be all round me, with now and then high overhead a sort of muffled roar. Looking upwards, I noticed that great thick clouds were drifting rapidly across the sky from north to south at a great height. There were signs of a coming storm in some lofty stratum of the air. I was a little chilly, and thinking that it was the sitting still after the exercise of walking, I resumed my journey. I took little heed of time, and it was only when the deepening twilight forced itself upon me that I began to think of how I should find my way home. The brightness of the day had gone. But I had said I would see the deserted village, so on I went, and presently came on a wide stretch of open country, shut in by hills all around. Their sides were covered with trees, which spread down to the plain, dotting in clumps the gentler slopes and hollows, which showed here and there. I followed with my eye the winding of the road and saw that it curved close to one of the densest of these clumps and was lost behind it. As I looked, there came a cold shiver in the air, and the snow began to fall. I thought of the miles and miles of bleak country I had passed, and then hurried on to seek the shelter of the wood. Darker and darker grew the sky. Then the wind grew stronger and blew with ever increasing force till I was fain to run before it. The snow was now falling so thickly that I could hardly keep my eyes open. The blackness of the storm had become merged in the darkness of the night, and every now and then the heavens were torn asunder by vivid lightning. In the flashes, I could see ahead of me a great mass of trees, chiefly yew and cypress, all heavily coated with snow. Scattered among the trees were ancient foundations of stone. Perhaps amongst so many old foundations, there might still be standing a house in which, though in ruins, I could find some sort of shelter for a while. As I skirted the edge of the copse, I found that a low wall encircled it, and following this, I presently found an opening. Just then, the drifting clouds obscured the moon, and I had passed upon a path in darkness. The wind must have grown colder, for I felt myself shiver as I walked. 
but there was hope of shelter and I groped my way blindly on. I stopped, for there was a sudden stillness, and perhaps in sympathy with nature's silence, my heart seemed to cease to beat. But this was only momentarily, for suddenly the moonlight broke through the clouds, showing me that I was in a graveyard. And before me was a great massive tomb of marble, as white as the snow that lay on and all around it. With the moonlight there came a fierce sigh of the storm which appeared to resume its course. I was awed and shocked, and felt the cold perceptibly grow upon me till it seemed to grip me by the heart. Then, while the flood of moonlight still fell on the marble tomb, I, I approached the sepulchre to see what it was and why such a thing stood alone in such a place. I walked around it and read over the Doric door in German, Countess Dolligan of Graz, in Styria, sought and found death, 1801. On the top of the tomb, seemingly driven through the solid marble, for the structure was composed of a few vast blocks of stone, was a great iron spike or stake. On going to the back, I saw graven in great Russian letters, The dead travel fast. There was something so weird and uncanny about the whole thing that it gave me a turn and made me feel quite faint. I began to wish for the first time that I had taken Johann's advice. Here a thought struck me, which came under almost mysterious circumstances and with a terrible shock. This was Valpurgis night. Valpurgis night, when graves were opened and the dead came forth, and I was here in this very place Johann had specially shunned. This was the horrible village of centuries ago, where so many were dead, and not dead. Now a perfect tornado burst upon me. The ground shook as though thousands of horses thundered across it, and this time the storm bore on its icy wings not snow, but great hailstones. Hailstones that beat down leaf and branch and made the shelter of the cypresses of Nocor a veil than a standing corn. First I had rushed to the nearest tree, but I was soon fain to leave it and seek the only spot that seemed to afford refuge. The deep doorway of the marble tomb. As I leaned against the door, it moved slightly and opened inwards. The shelter of even a tomb was welcome in that pitiless tempest, and I was about to enter it when there came a flash of forked lightning that lit up the whole expanse of the heavens. In the instant, as I am a living man, I saw, as my eyes were turned into the darkness of the tomb, a beautiful woman, with rounded cheeks and red lips, seemingly sleeping on a bier. As the thunder broke overhead, I was grasped by the hand of a great giant and fell out into the storm. I had a strange, dominating feeling that I was not alone. I looked towards the tomb. Just then, there came another blinding flash and seemed to strike the iron stake that surmounted the tomb and to pour through to the earth, blasting and crumbling the marble as in a burst of flame. The dead woman rose for a moment of agony while she was lapped in the flame and her bitter 
scream of pain was drowned in the thunder crash. sort of vague beginning of consciousness, then a sense of weariness that was dreadful. For a time, I remembered nothing, but slowly my senses returned. My feet seemed positively racked with pain, yet I could not move them. They seemed to be numbed. There was an icy feeling at the back of my neck and all down my spine, and my ears, like my feet, were dead, yet in torment, but there was in my breast a sense of warmth which was by comparison delicious. I felt some heavy weight on my chest which made it difficult to breathe. Then came a sort of loathing, like the first stage of seasickness and a wild desire to be free from something I knew not what. A vast stillness enveloped me as though all the world were asleep or dead, only broken by the low panting as of some animal close to me. I felt a warm rasping at my throat. Then came a consciousness of the awful truth, which chilled me to the heart and sent the blood surging up through my brain. Some great animal was lying on me. And now... Licking my throat. I feared to stir. Some instinct of prudence bade me lie still, but the brute seemed to realize that there was now some change in me, for it raised its head. Through my eyelashes I saw above me two great flaming eyes of a gigantic wolf. Its sharp white teeth gleamed in the gaping red mouth, and I could feel its hot breath fierce and acrid upon me. For another spell of time, I remembered no more. Then, seemingly very far away, I heard many voices calling in unison. Cautiously, I raised my head and looked in the direction whence the sound came, but the cemetery blocked my view. Then, all at once, from beyond the trees, there came at a trot a troop of horsemen bearing torches. The wolf rose from my breast and made for the cemetery. At a gallop, the troop rode forward, some towards me, others following the wolf as it disappeared amongst the snow-clad cypresses. As they drew nearer, I tried to move, but was powerless, although I could see and hear all that went on around me. Two of the soldiers jumped from their horses and knelt beside me. Some brandy was poured down my throat. It put vigor into me. Lights and shadows were moving among the trees, and I could hear men call to one another. They drew together, uttering frightened exclamations, and the lights flashed as the others came pouring out of the cemetery, pell-mell, like men possessed. And the further ones came close to us. One of those who was with me asked, Did you see him? No. No. Come away, quick. This is no place to stay. And on this, of all nights. What was it? Was it him? It was a wolf. And yet, not a wolf. Without the sacred bullet, there is no use trying for him. 
serves us right for coming out on this night. Truly, we have earned our thousand marks. There was blood on the broken marble. Fresh blood. And for him, is he safe? Look at his throat. See, the wolf has been lying on him and keeping his blood warm. He is all right. The skin is not pierced. What does it all mean? We should never have found him but for the call of the wolf. What became of it? It went to its home. There are graves enough there in which it may lie. Come, comrade. Let us leave this cursed spot. The soldier raised me to a sitting posture. As he uttered a word of command, then several men placed me upon a horse. With a word to advance, we rode away in swift military order. The next thing I remember was finding myself standing in front of the Quatre Saisons, supported by a soldier on each side of me. It was almost broad daylight, and to the north a red streak of sunlight was reflected like a path of blood over the countryside. As Herr Delbruck approached, the officer was telling the men to say nothing of what they had seen, except that they had found an English stranger, guarded by a large dog. Ah, dog. That was no dog. I think I know a wolf when I see one. Don't be a fool. I said a dog. Look at his throat. Is that the walk of a dog? As I said, it was a dog. If the truth were told... We should only be laughed at. My young friend, Herr Delbruck, how was it that the soldiers searched for me? Ah, I was so fortunate as to obtain leave from the commander of the regiment in which I served to ask for volunteers. But how did you know I was lost? The driver came hither with the remains of his carriage, which had been upset when the horses ran away. And you sent a search party of soldiers merely on this account? No, my young friend. Even before the coachman arrived, I had this telegram from the boyar whose guest you are. He took from his pocket a telegram, which he handed to me, and I read. the telegram in my hand, the room seemed to whirl around me, and if the attentive maitre d'hotel had not caught me, I think I should have fallen. There was something so strange in all this, something so weird and impossible to imagine, that there grew on me a sense of my being, in some way, the sport of opposite forces, the mere vague idea of which seemed in a way to paralyze me.
I was certainly under some form of mysterious protection. From a distant country had come, in the very nick of time, a message that took me out of the danger of the snow sleep and the jaws of the wolf. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. I'm your host, Justin the Ghoul Man, joined with Tommy the Tominator. Before we get to my top five favorite Draculas, let me give you my two least favorite. The first one is Dominic Purcell's portrayal of Dracula in the movie Blade Trinity. Now, it's not necessarily his performance that is bad. It's the fact that it's a comic book movie. The writers gave themselves a pretty decent vampire villain, a nice, uh, nice foil to Blade, but they needed the name to make him a little bit more menacing, so they just slapped Dracula on top of him. They don't give Dracula any of the charm. They don't really even really give him a whole lot of viciousness. They just make him kind of a murderer, psychopath, demon kind of thing. And that's what didn't play well for me. Uh, they didn't give him much to work with. In fact, his best scene as Dracula is when he enters the Dracula store... And you got the two goth workers, they're like, what's up, you got a problem with me? And he goes, no, not really, and then decides to eat them. And of course, he does eat a lot of other people and vampires. His whole excuse for Dracula hiding is that he got bored. So that's my problem with Dominic Purcell's portrayal of Dracula, is that he just didn't get a fair shake at being Dracula. Sort of like the Dracula and the Buffy the Vampire Slayer, when they decided to put when they decided to pit Buffy versus Dracula. Wasn't that exciting? And it was like that, just kind of, there. Now, my other problem is Gerard Butler's Dracula and Dracula 2000. Oh, dude, them fighting words there. My wife is going to have a problem with you. That is her favorite Dracula ever. My wife says the same thing. She loves Gerard Butler as Dracula. The only thing I liked about that was the the twist as to who Dracula really was. And spoiler alert for a movie that's over a decade old, Dracula, or Gerard Butler in this case, is Judas. That's his punishment for betraying Jesus. So there you go. That's one other take on Dracula. Because nobody really knows, well, nobody really knows who Dracula is because Dracula is a fake character. Says you. Well, why don't you go visit Dracula's castle? Nobody knows where that is. They, they just picked some uh, random uh, castle out there in Romania. Now, why don't I like Gerard Butler as Dracula? It was kind of uh, compared to the other performances, and this is before his breakout. This is before 300. His performance was just, blah, it was cardboard, like the best actress ever, Brie Larson. It was just, he, there was nothing scary about him, you know, and uh, there was nothing charming about him. It was just my magic power, my vampiric powers will charm you and that's it he didn't scare me he didn't uh make me feel anything i mean the movie wasn't that great either Uh, a lot of uh bad choices bad dialogue bad acting which is a surprise considering the people who are in the movie and it must have been just kind of one of those paycheck movies for them but overall dracula 2000 and gerard butler just wasn't my cup of tea 
So we're going to go ahead and start counting down our top five favorite Draculas. As we start my countdown of the top five Draculas of all time, you're going to notice that Bella Lugosi does not make this list. I don't think he's a horrible Dracula. He is the quintessential Dracula. He is the one that everybody measures up to. I mean, look at Nick Cage as Dracula. His was the closest to Bela Lugosi that I've seen in a long time. Uh, but to me, Bela Lugosi just didn't have it. I've liked him in other stuff, but it was just not as Dracula. And yes, this is the, the gateway, the, the, the foundation of horror is the Universal Monsters. Doesn't mean he has to be in my top five. Now, why don't I think he's one of the best? Well, I was just kind of bored with his Dracula. This was one of the first Universal movies that I just couldn't plow through and watch. Now, if it comes to the big screen, like Bride of Frankenstein and the Mummy did, or The Creature from the Black Lagoon, I would probably go see it. So I'll, I'll look out for that for this Halloween. I mean, it's still fun to go see the classics on the big screen. Now, here's why Lugosi's Dracula was boring. And it comes down to this classic battle between him and Van Helsing, or at least the first acknowledgement, or their, their first little battle. Van Helsing. Now that you have learned what you have learned, it would be well for you to return to your own country. I prefer to remain and protect those whom you would destroy. You are too late. My blood now flows through her veins. She will live through the centuries to come, as I have lived. Should you escape us, Dracula, we know how to save Miss Mina's soul, if not her life. If she dies by day, but I shall see that she dies by night. And I will have Carfax Abbey torn down stone by stone, excavated a mile around. I will find your earth box and drive that stake through your heart. Come here. Come here. Now here you got Bella Lugosi, our Dracula, just throwing his hand out, saying, come to me. And Helsing just stands there staring at him yeah he's standing there like he's trying to do the square root of pi do you even know what the square root of pi is i sure do that means go cut me a slice and bring it to me yeah that's what i thought but yeah van helsing's got that stupid look on his face like i will not come to you or what are you doing man it was kind of weird and I, I think the fact that there was no music or no cheesy sound effect that he was throwing his magic out there, I mean, it was just like fingernails and a hard stare. Come to me. And, it, and it's things like that through there. That's why when you find out later on in my list that Gary Oldman does a whole lot better as Dracula. Now, people may say that, hey, that comes down to storytelling techniques and movies made in the 30s and 40s versus movies made in the 90s are always going to be far superior. I just think, okay, we'll just we'll chalk it up to storytelling techniques. But that factors in into what I like about Dracula. And that's why Bella Lugosi does not make my top five. So let's return to our creature feature of the night. You're listening to Frightening Tales. When we come back, 
I will start revealing who are my favorite Draculas of all time. Episode 2, The Castle. Jonathan Harker is in Germany, about to enter the final leg of his journey to Transylvania to meet Count Dracula. He tallies his adventures in this strange land in his private journal. Third of May, Bistritz. It was on the dark side of twilight when we got to Bistritz, which is a very interesting old place, being practically on the frontier, for the Borgo Pass leads from it into Bukovina. Count Dracula had directed me to go to the Golden Crone Hotel. I was evidently expected, for when I got near the door, I faced a cheery-looking elderly woman in the usual peasant dress of white undergarment with long double apron, front and back, fitting almost too tight for modesty. When I came close, she bowed and said, The Herr Englishman? Uh, yes, Jonathan Harker? I have for you this letter. Thank you. It is shown. My friend, welcome to the Carpathians. I am anxiously expecting you. Sleep well tonight. At three tomorrow, the diligence will start for Bukovina. the old man if he knew Count Dracula and could tell me anything of his castle, he and his wife, the old lady who had received me, looked at each other in a frightened sort of way. They crossed themselves vigorously and saying that they knew nothing at all, simply refused to speak further. It was so near the time of starting that I had no time to ask anyone else. It was all very mysterious and not by any means comforting. Just before I was leaving, the old woman came up to my room. Come in. Please, may I speak with you? For a moment. Must you go to this place? Oh, young Herr, must you go? But of course. I must go at once. I I'm engaged in important business. Do you know what day it is? Uh, the, uh, the 4th of May, I believe. Oh, yes, I know that. But do you know what day it is? Madam, I do not understand your question. It is the eve of St. George's Day. Do you not know that tonight, when the clock strikes midnight, all the evil things in the world will have full sway? Do you know where you are going? 
and what you are going to. She was in such evident distress that I tried to comfort her, but without effect. Finally, she went down on her knees and implored me not to go, at least to wait a day or two before starting. It was all very ridiculous, but still, I did not feel comfortable. However, there was business to be done, and I could allow nothing to interfere with it. I therefore tried to raise her up and said as greatly as I could that I thanked her, but my duty was imperative, and that I must go. She then rose and dried her eyes, and taking a crucifix from her neck, offered it to me. Take this; it will protect you. Well. As an English churchman, I have been taught to regard such things as, in some measure, idolatrous. Please, for your mother's sake. With this, she put the rosary round my neck, crossed herself repeatedly, and went out of the room. I'm writing up this part of the diary whilst I'm waiting for the coach. The crucifix is still round my neck. Whether it is the old lady's fear, or the many ghostly traditions of this place, or the crucifix itself, I do not know. But I am not feeling nearly as easy in my mind as usual. If this book should ever reach Mina before I do, let it bring my goodbye. Here comes the coach. Our driver cracked his big whip, and we set off on our journey. The road was rugged, but still we seemed to fly over it with a feverish haste. The driver was evidently bent on losing no time in reaching the Borgo Pass. By the roadside were many crosses, and as we swept by, my companions all crossed themselves. When it grew dark, there seemed to be some excitement amongst the passengers. And they kept speaking to the driver, one after the other, as though urging him to further speed. He lashed the horses unmercifully with his long whip and urged them on to further exertions. The mountains seemed to come nearer to us on each side and to frown down upon us. We were entering on the Borgo Pass. One by one, several of the passengers offered me a blessing, the sign of the cross, and the guard against the evil eye. The driver came to a stop, and we stood silently in the blackness of the night. Then the driver leaned forward, and on each side the passengers, craning over the edge of the coach, peered eagerly into the darkness. I was now myself looking out for the conveyance which was to take me to the count. Each moment I expected to see the glare of lamps through the blackness, but all was dark. The only light was the flickering rays of our own lamps, in which the steam from our hard-driven horses arose in a white cloud. I was already thinking what I had best do when the driver, looking at his watch, turned to me. There is no carriage here. The hare is not expected after all. You will now come on to Bukovina and return tomorrow or the next day. Better the next day. Then, amongst a chorus of cries from the peasants and a universal caution of themselves, a calèche with four horses drove up behind us, overtook us, and drew up beside the coach. 
I could see from the flash of our lamps as the rays fell on them that the horses were coal-black and splendid animals. They were driven by a tall man with long brown beard and a great black hat which seemed to hide his face from us. I could only see the gleam of a pair of very bright eyes which seemed red in the lamplight as he turned to us. He said to the driver, You are early tonight, my friend. The English here was in a hurry. That is why, I suppose, you wished him to go on to Bukovina. You cannot deceive me, my friend. I know too much, and my horses are swift. As he spoke, he smiled, and the lamplight fell on a hard-looking mouth with very red lips and sharp-looking teeth as white as ivory. One of my companions whispered, For the dead travel fast. The strange driver evidently heard the words, for he looked up with a gleaming smile. The passenger turned her face away, at the same time putting out her two fingers and crossing herself. Give me the luggage. With surprising speed, my bags were handed out and put in the caleche. Then I descended from the side of the coach as the caleche was close alongside, the driver helping me with a hand which caught my arm in a grip of steel. His strength must have been prodigious. Without a word, he took his reins, the horses turned, and we swept into the darkness of the pass. As I looked back, I saw the steam from the horses of the coach by the light of the lamps, and projected against it the figures of my late companions. Then the driver cracked his whip and called to his horses, and off they swept on their way to Bukovina. As they sank into the darkness, I felt a strange chill and a lonely feeling came over me, but a cloak was thrown over my shoulders and a rug across my knees, and the driver said to me, The night is chill, mine hair, and my master, the Count, bade me take all care of you. There is a flask of Schlibovitz underneath the seat if you should require it. The carriage went at a hard pace straight along. Then we made a complete turn and went along another straight road. I was curious to know how time was passing, so I struck a match and by its flame looked at my watch. It was within a few minutes of midnight. A dog began to howl somewhere far down the road, a long, agonized wailing as if from fear. The sound was taken up by another dog and then another and another, till borne on the wind which now sighed softly through the pass. Suddenly, away on our left, I saw a faint flickering blue flame. The driver saw it at the same moment. He at once checked the horses and, jumping to the ground, disappeared into the darkness. I did not know what to do, the less as the howling of the wolves grew closer. During his absence, the horses began to tremble worse than ever. I could not see any cause for it, for the howling of the wolves had ceased altogether, but just then the moon appeared, and by its light I saw around us a ring of wolves with white teeth and lolling red tongues. Just as I called to the coachman, I heard his voice raised in a tone of imperious command, and looking towards the sound, saw him stand in the roadway. 
as he swept his long arms, the walls fell back. He repeated the gesture, and the walls fell back for the stills. Just then, a heavy cloud passed across the face of the moon. We swept on our way, now in almost complete darkness. Suddenly, I became conscious that the driver was pulling up the horses in the courtyard of a vast ruined castle, from whose tall black windows came no ray of light, and whose broken battlements showed a jagged line against the moonlit sky. Just as I descended the calèche, the horses started forward, and, trap and all, disappeared down one of the dark openings. I stood in silence where I was, for I did not know what to do. What sort of place had I come to, and uh, among what kind of people? Just then, I saw through the chinks the gleam of a coming light. There was the sound of rattling chains and of massive bolts drawn back. A key was turned with a loud grating noise of long disuse, and the great door swung back. Within stood a tall old man, clean-shaven save for a long white moustache, and clad in black from head to foot, without a single speck of colour about him anywhere. Welcome to my house. Enter freely, and of your own will. He made no motion of stepping to meet me, but stood like a statue as though his gesture of welcome had fixed him into stone. The instant, however, that I had stepped over the threshold, he moved impulsively forward, and holding out his hand, mine with a strength which made me wince an effect which was not lessened by the fact that it seemed as cold as ice, more like the hand of a dead than living man. Come freely, go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. Count Dracula. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome, Mr. Harker, to my house. Come in. The night air is chill, and you must need to eat and rest. You are my guest, and it is late. My people are not available. Let me see to your comfort myself. He led me along a passage and then up a great winding stair, and along another great passage, on whose stone floor our steps rang heavily. At the end of this, he threw open a heavy door, and I rejoiced to see within a well-lit room, in which a table was spread for supper, and on whose mighty hearth a great fire of logs flamed and flared. By this time I had finished my supper and by my host's desire, had drawn up a chair by the fire. I had now an opportunity of observing him, and found him of a very marked physiognomy. 
His face was aquiline, with high bridge of the thin nose and peculiarly arched nostrils, with lofty domed forehead and hair growing scantily round the temples. His eyebrows were very massive, almost meeting over the nose, and with bushy hair that seemed to curl in its own profusion. The mouth was fixed and rather cruel-looking, with sharp white teeth. These protruded over the lips, whose remarkable ruddiness showed astonishing vitality in a man of his years. His ears were pale, and at the tops extremely pointed, and the cheeks firm though thin. The general effect was one of extraordinary pallor. His hands had seemed rather white and fine, but seeing them now close, I could not but notice that they were rather coarse, broad, with squat fingers. Strange to say, there were hairs in the center of the palm. The nails were long and fine and cut to a sharp point. As the Count leaned over me and his hands touched me, I could not repress a shudder, for his breath was rank, and a horrible feeling of nausea came over me, which, do what I would, I could not conceal. The Count, evidently noticing it, drew back, and with a grim sort of smile, which showed more of his protuberant teeth, sat himself down again on his own side of the fireplace. We were both silent for a while, and as I looked towards the window, I saw the first dim streak of the coming dawn. Wolves. Listen to them, the children of the night. What music they make. My dear Count. Ah, sir, you dwellers in the city cannot enter into the feelings of the hunter. But you must be tired. Your bedroom is already... And tomorrow you shall sleep as late as you will. I have to be away till the afternoon. So sleep well and dream well. I take my leave. Good night. I am all in a sea of wonders. I doubt... I fear, I think strange things, which I dare not confess to my own soul. God keep me, if only for the sake of those dear to me. I slept till late in the day, and awoke of my own accord. When I had dressed myself, I went into the room where we had supped, and found a card on the table, on which was written... I have to be absent for a while. Do not wait for me, Dracula. A cold breakfast had been laid for me, so I set to and enjoyed a hearty meal. By the time I had finished, it was early evening. I looked about for something to read, for I did not like to go about the castle until I had asked the Count's permission. There was absolutely nothing in the room, book, newspaper, or even writing materials, so I opened another door in the room and found a sort of library. 
In the library, I found to my great delight a vast number of English books, whole shelves full of them, and bound volumes of magazines and newspapers, all relating to England and English life and customs and manners. Whilst I was looking at the books, the door opened and the Count entered. Good morning, my young friend, Mr. Arger. I trust you have had a good night's rest. Why, yes, I did. Thank you. I am glad you found your way in here, for I am sure there is much that will interest you.、Mm, it is indeed an extensive collection. Through these books, I have come to know your great England, and to know her is to love her. I long to go through the crowded streets of your mighty London. To be in the midst of the whirl and rush of humanity, to share its life, its change, its death, and all that makes it what it is. But alas, as yet I only know your tongue through books. To you, my friend, I look that I know it to speak. But Count, you know and speak English thoroughly. I thank you, my friend, for your all too flattering estimate. Indeed, you speak excellently. Not so. I know that did I move and speak in your London, none there are who would not know me for a stranger. That is not enough for me. I have been so long the master that I would be master still. I am sorry that I had to be away so long today, but you will, I know, forgive one who has so many important affairs in hand. I shall, of course, do as you wish. And may I come into this library from time to time? Yes, certainly. You may go anywhere you wish in the castle, except where the doors are locked. Where, of course, you will not wish to go. There is reason that all things are as they are. And did you see with my eyes and know with my knowledge, you would perhaps better understand. This led to much conversation, and as it was evident that he wanted to talk, if only for talking's sake. I asked him many questions regarding things that had already happened to me or come within my notice. Sometimes he sheered off the subject or turned the conversation by pretending not to understand. But generally, he answered all I asked most frankly. Then, as time went on and I had got somewhat bolder, I asked him of some of the strange things of the preceding night. I say, Count Dracula, last night. Why did the coachman go to the places where he had seen the blue flames? Was it indeed true that they showed where gold was hidden? That treasure has been hidden in the region through which you came last night. There can be but little doubt, for it was the ground fought over for centuries by the Valachian, the Saxon, and the Turk. But how can it have remained so long undiscovered when there is a sure index to it if men will but take the trouble to look? Because.
because the peasant is at heart a coward and a fool. Those flames only appear on one night, and on that night, no man of this land will, if he can help it, stir without his doors. Even the peasant that you tell me of, who marked the place of the flame, would not know where to look in daylight, even for his own work. You would not, I dare be sworn, be able to find these places again. You are correct in that. Now, come, tell me of London and of the house which you have procured for me. With an apology for my amissness, I went into my own room to get the papers from my bag. Whilst I was placing them in order, I heard a rattling of china and silver in the next room, and as I passed through, noticed that the table had been cleared and the lamp lit, for it was by this time deep into the dark of the night. Ah, the sun sets, and the world becomes alive. But I digress. Come. To the business at hand. Uh, yes. Uh, now then, uh, the estate itself is called Carfax. No doubt, a corruption of the old Carta Face, as the house is four-sided, agreeing with the cardinal points of the compass. It contains in all some twenty acres, quite surrounded by the solid stone wall I've mentioned. The house is very large, and of all periods back, I should say, to medieval times, for one part is of stone immensely thick, with only a few windows high up and heavily barred with iron. It looks like part of a keep, and is close to an old chapel or church. I have taken with my Kodak views of it from various points. The house has been added to, but in a very straggling way, and I can only guess at the amount of ground it covers, which must be very great. There are but few houses close at hand, one being a very large house, only recently added to and uh, formed into a private lunatic asylum. It is not, however, visible from the grounds. I am glad that it is old and big. A house cannot be made habitable in a day. And, after all, how few days go to make up a century. I rejoice also that there is a chapel of old times. I love the shadows and would be alone with my thoughts when I may. Presently he left me. He was some little time away, and I began to look at some of the books around me. One was an atlas, which I found open naturally at England, as if that map had been much used. On looking at it, I found in certain places little rings marked, and on examining these, I noticed that one was near London, on the east side, manifestly where his new estate was situated. The other two were Exeter and Whitby on the Yorkshire coast. It was the better part of an hour when the Count returned. Ah, my friend, you must not work always. Come, I am informed that your supper is ready.
He took my arm and we went into the next room where I found an excellent supper ready on the table. Why, there is the morning again. How remiss I am to let you stay up so long. You must make your conversation regarding my dear new country of England. Less interesting, so that I may not forget how time flies by us. With a courtly bow, he quickly left me. I went into my own room and drew the curtains, but there was little to notice. My window opened into the courtyard. All I could see was the warm grey of quickening sky. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. I'm your host, Justin the Ghoul Man Redman, and I'm joined by Tommy, the Tominator Tactical. And we are talking all things Dracula. Last segment, I talked about who are my least favorite Draculas of all time. Now we're going to move on into who are my favorites. So let's go ahead and talk about Dracula and see who beats out Bella Lugosi, Frank Langella, and Christopher Lee. Coming in at number five, Nicolas Cage. Who would have thought me, of all people, would put Nicolas Cage at my number five best Dracula ever? Yeah, why would you? I mean, he was a great performance. I enjoyed it. But why number five? I don't know if he had even cracked any of my lists. Okay, we're going to go based on the fact that he was menacing the entire time. He was just a big bully. They didn't really put him in any situations to be charming uh, because he was not the, the main point of the story. Renfield was. So when you see Dracula, you see him in a vulnerable state, but still intimidating. When the drug lord's son enters the abandoned hospital where Dracula is staying and recovering from, he's still badass. He still knocks the other thugs away. And recognizes that, oh, Renfield kind of betrayed me here. And you represent an evil organization, and I want to take over the world as well. Hey, let's team up. And anytime he, he's after Renfield, he, he's just pushing him around. And to see at the beginning of the movie, when Nicolas Cage is fighting the church or the hunters... He still holds a lot of sway over Renfield. And the church almost got Renfield to flip and betray him way back in, like, say, the 1800s. We'll just use that as a reference point. They almost flipped Renfield, but he has enough charm to control Renfield and to keep him on his side to save his life and then to serve him for another 90 years while he recovers from said incident. Now, what makes Nicolas Cage a great Dracula? Well, let's listen. Would you like to introduce yourself to the group? I'm the Prince of Valencia. Some call me the Dark One. Others, the Lord of Death. 
However, to most, I am known simply as... Redfield's boss! See, that's what I needed to hear from Dracula. That's what I need Dracula to be. I am the Dark Lord. You shall fear me. And that's Dracula for you. And Nick Cage's makeup was on point. The filed teeth, those were just awesome. They gave him a different look. Now, I did worry a lot about this movie when they started releasing some of the production shots. And Nicolas Cage in this red velvet suit coat, it just looked absolutely ridiculous and to see it in action on the film was way better than i thought it was going to be number four is not actually a movie it's a television show that nbc kind of uh, killed on their own they aired this show dracula on friday nights around 10 o'clock in the evening is when they aired this. This show was demographic was more for, you know, 20s to 30 age. And yet they showed it on a Friday night at 10 p.m. when that very same demographic is not home. So they didn't really have any plans for this show to succeed. And that's a shame because Jonathan Reese Myers played an amazing Dracula. He was charming. You saw the conflict between him. You saw the conflict that he had with not wanting to bite Mina, which is the reincarnation of his true love. The whole reason Dracula is back in London pretending that he's an American entrepreneur, Alexander Grayson, is because he's trying to get revenge on the very group of hunters that killed his beloved Mina and thought they killed him. Now, it's a long, drawn-out show. There are some very boring parts. This show came out in 2013. It's got a very uh, dark Downton Abbey feel, feel to it, which it was produced by the people who gave us Downton, Downton Abbey. He, he's got his big, strong bodyguard, Renfield, which I never learned this actor's name. I see him everywhere. He, he's, he's typecasted in these big guardian roles. I never see him go... Well, I did see him go full-blown, like... Man of influence in Game of Thrones. But other than that, he, he's always just this big, burly bodyguard. And why does Dracula need a bodyguard? Well, he's vulnerable during the day, duh. And you know, the guy is, of course, Renfield. Now, we've seen many iterations of Renfield. Most of the time, he's a stupid buffoon who's gone crazy and never thinks twice about abandoning his master. So Jonathan Reese Myers, he's got the charm. He definitely had the, the menace because when he struck, he struck. He, he, was, he manipulated things. He, got, he moved everybody into the positions that he needed them to be in before he struck. And he, he, he created a great persona for himself, this Alexander Grayson, the American entrepreneur. One of the scenes you see the most of and you see highlighted a lot is him bringing electricity to London and showing them they have the power. Great setup, by the way. And that's why Jonathan Reese Myers comes in at number four of my all-time best Draculas ever. 
Now let's get back to our feature tale. Uh, <clears throat> now let's get back to our creature feature. When we come back, I'm going to give you number three and number two. Best Draculas ever. Episode 3, The Lizard. After a strange and perilous journey, Jonathan Harker has arrived at Castle Dracula and made the acquaintance of the Count. Subtle fears have risen, and he begins to doubt his safety and his sanity. so strange about this place and all in it that I cannot but feel uneasy. I wish I was safe out of it or that I had never come. If there were anyone to talk to, I could bear it, but there is no one. I have only the Count to speak with. I fear that I am myself the only living soul within the place. I had only slept a few hours when I went to bed, and, feeling that I could not sleep any more, got up. I had hung my shaving glass by the window and was just beginning to shave. Suddenly, I felt a hand on my shoulder. Good morning. Oh, Count, oh, you startled me. You will forgive me. I was amazed that I had not seen him, since the reflection of the glass covered the whole room behind me. I looked again in the mirror, and this time there could be no error. I could see the Count over my shoulder, but there was no reflection of him in the mirror. In starting, I had cut myself slightly, and it had bled a little, so the blood was trickling over my chin. I laid down the razor, turning as I did so half round to look for some sticking plaster. When the Count saw my face, his eyes blazed with a sort of demoniac fury, and he suddenly made a grab at my throat. I turned away, and his hand touched the string of beads which held the crucifix. It made an instant change in him, for the fury passed so quickly I could but hardly believe it was ever there. Take care. Take care how you cut yourself. It is more dangerous than you think in this country. Then... Seizing the shaving glass, he went on. And this, this is the wretched thing that has done the mischief. It is a foul bauble of man's vanity. Away with it. And opening the heavy window with one wrench of his terrible hand, he flung out the glass which was shattered into a thousand pieces on the stones of the courtyard far below. Then he withdrew, without a word. When I went into the dining room, breakfast was prepared. I could not find the Count anywhere, so I breakfasted alone. Afterwards, I did a little exploring in the castle and found a room looking towards the south. The view was magnificent, and from where I stood there was every opportunity of seeing it. The castle is on the very edge of a terrible precipice. A stone falling from the window would fall a thousand feet without touching anything. 
as far as the eye can reach is a sea of green treetops, with occasionally a deep rift where there is a chasm. Here and there are silver threads where the rivers wind in deep gorges through the forests. But I am not in heart to describe beauty, for when I had seen the view, I explored further. Doors, doors, doors everywhere, and all locked and bolted. In no place, save from the windows in the castle walls, is there an available exit. The castle is a veritable prison, and I am the prisoner. The conviction of my helplessness overpowered all other feelings. I sat down quietly, as quietly as I have ever done anything in my life, and began to think over what was best to be done. Of one thing only am I certain that it is no use making my ideas known to the Count. He knows well that I am imprisoned, and as he has done it himself, and has doubtless his own motives for it, he would only deceive me if I trusted him fully with the facts. So far as I can see, my only plan will be to keep my knowledge and my fears to myself, and my eyes open. I had hardly come to this conclusion when I heard the great door below shut, and knew that the Count had returned. I went quietly to my room and saw the Count making the bed. This gave me a fright, for if there is no one else in the castle, it must have been the Count himself who was the driver of the coach that brought me here. And if this is so, how is it that he could control the wolves by only holding up his hand in silence? And the people of the village? What meant the giving of the crucifix, of the garlic, of the wild rose? Bless that good, good woman who hung the crucifix round my neck. It gives me comfort and strength. I must find out all I can about Count Dracula, as it may help me to understand. Tonight he may talk of himself, if I turn the conversation that way. I must be very careful, however, not to awake his suspicion. It is after midnight. I have had a long talk with the Count. I asked him a few questions on Transylvania history, and he warmed up to the subject wonderfully. In his speaking of things and people, and especially of battles, he spoke as if he had been present at them all. He spoke like a king, and grew excited as he spoke, and walked about the room pulling his white moustache and grasping on anything which he laid his hands as though he would crush it by main strength. Ours were victories which the likes of the Habsburgs and the Romanovs can never reach. The warlike days are over. Blood is too precious a thing in these days of dishonorable peace. And the glories of the great races are as a tale that is told. It is close upon morning. And this morning brings a storm. Mm, such weather can bring a peaceful sleep. Yes, to sleep in peace. Sir? It is nothing. You stir an ancient memory. Tell me, young Harker, have you written since your first letter to our friend? Mr. Peter Hawkins, or to any other? Uh, no, I have not. 
And right now, my young friend, write to our friend and to any other and say, if it will please you, that you shall stay with me until a month from now. Do you wish me to stay so long? I will take no refusal. When your master engaged that someone should come on his behalf, it was understood that my needs only were to be consulted. I have not stinted. Is it not so? While Count Dracula was speaking, there was that in his eyes and in his bearing which made me remember that I was a prisoner, and that if I wished it, I could have no choice. The Count saw his victory in my bow, and his mastery in the trouble of my face, for he began at once to use them, but in his own smooth, resistless way. I pray you, my good young friend, that you will not discourse of things other than business in your letter. It will doubtless please your friends to know that you are well and that you look forward to getting home to them. He gave me a quiet smile with the sharp canine teeth lying over the red underlip. I understood well that I should be careful what I wrote, or he would be able to read it. I trust you will forgive me. But I have much work to do in private this evening. You will, I hope, find all things as you wish. Why, yes, of course. I bid you good evening, Mr. Harker. With this he smiled, turned, and went quickly from the room. After a little while, not hearing any sound, I came out of my room and went up the stone stair to where I could look out towards the south. Looking out on this, I felt that I was indeed in prison, and I seemed to want a breath of fresh air, though it were of the night. Now and then the clouds gave way, and during these moments I looked out over the beautiful expanse bathed in a soft yellow moonlight. As I leaned from the window, my eye was caught by something moving a story below me, and somewhat to my left, where I imagined, from the order of the rooms, that the windows of the Count's own room would look out. I drew back behind the stonework and looked carefully out. What I saw was the Count's head coming out from the window. I did not see the face, but I knew the man by the neck and the movement of his back and arms. I was at first interested and somewhat amused, for it is wonderful how small a matter will interest and amuse a man when he is a prisoner. But my very feelings changed to repulsion and terror when I saw the whole man slowly emerge from the window and begin to crawl down the castle wall over the dreadful abyss, face down, with his cloak spreading out around him like great wings. At first I thought it was some trick of the moonlight, some weird effect of shadow, but I kept looking and it could be no delusion. I saw the fingers and toes grasp the corners of the stones worn clear of the mortar by stress of the years, and 
by thus using every projection and inequality moved downwards with considerable speed just as a lizard moves along a wall what manner of man is this or what manner of creature is it in the semblance of a man i feel the dread of this horrible place overpowering me i am in fear in awful fear and there is no escape for me i am encompassed about with terrors that i dare not think of i watched in amazement as the count moved in this reptilian fashion then he vanished into some hole or window when his head had disappeared i leaned out to try and see more but without avail I knew he had left the castle now and determined to use the opportunity to explore more than I had dared to as yet. Taking a lamp, I tried all the doors. They were all locked as I expected. At last I found one door at the top of the stairway which though it seemed to be locked gave a little under pressure. I exerted myself and with many efforts forced it back so that I could enter. This was evidently the portion of the castle occupied by the ladies in bygone days for the furniture had more air of comfort than any I had seen. I found a soft quietude come over me. Sitting at a little oak table where in days past some fair lady sat to pen with much thought and many blushes a letter to her princely lover. God preserve my sanity for to this I am reduced safety and the assurance of safety are things of the past once I live on here there is but one thing to hope for that I may not go mad if indeed I be not mad already if I be sane then surely it is maddening to think of all the foul things that lurk in this hateful place that count is the least dreadful to me that to him alone I can look for safety even though this be only whilst I serve his purpose. While seated at the desk, I remembered a mysterious warning the Count had given me. It had frightened me at the time. Let me advise you, my dear young friend. Nay, let me warn you with all seriousness that should you leave these rooms, pleasure in disobeying these words the sense of sleep was upon me and with it the obstinacy which sleep brings as outrider the soft moonlight soothed and the wide expanse without gave a sense of freedom which refreshed me i suppose i must have fallen asleep i hope so 
But I fear for all that followed was startlingly real, so real that now, sitting here in the broad, full sunlight of the morning, I cannot in the least believe that it was all sleep. I was not alone. In the moonlight opposite me were two young women, ladies by their dress and manner. I, I thought at the time that I must be dreaming when I saw them, for though the moonlight was behind them, they threw no shadow on the floor. They came close to me and looked at me for some time and then whispered together. One was dark and had a high aquiline nose like the Count and great dark, piercing eyes that seemed to be almost red when contrasted with the pale yellow moon. The other was fair, as fair as can be, with great wavy masses of golden hair and eyes like pale sapphires. Both had brilliant white teeth that shone like pearls against the ruby of their voluptuous lips. I was repelled, and yet I felt in my heart a wicked, burning desire that they would kiss me. They whispered together, and then they laughed, such a silvery, musical laugh, but as hard as though the sound never could have come through the softness of human lips. The fair girl shook her head coquettishly, and the other urged her on. Go on. You are first, and I shall follow. Yours is the right to begin. He is young and strong, and tonight... lay quiet, looking out under my eyelashes in an agony of delightful anticipation. The fair girl advanced and bent over me till I could feel the movement of her breath upon me. Sweet it was in one sense, honey-sweet, and sent the same tingling through the nerves as her voice, but with a bitter underlying the sweet, a bitter offensiveness, as one smells in blood. I was afraid to raise my eyelids, but looked out and saw perfectly under the lashes. The girl went on her knees and bent over me, simply gloating. There was a deliberate voluptuousness which was both thrilling and repulsive, and as she arched her neck, she actually licked her lips like an animal till I could see in the moonlight the moisture shining on the scarlet lips and on the red tongue as it lapped the white sharp teeth. Lower and lower went her head as the lips went below the range of my mouth and chin and seemed about to fasten on my throat. Then she paused and I could hear the churning sound of her tongue as it licked her teeth and lips and could feel the hot breath on my neck. Then the skin of my throat began to tingle as one's flesh does when the hand that is to tickle it approaches nearer. I could feel the soft, shivering touch of the lips on the super-sensitive skin of my throat and the hard dents of two sharp teeth just touching and pausing there. I closed my eyes in a languorous ecstasy and waited, waited with a beating heart. But in that instant I was conscious of the presence of the Count and of his being as if lapped in a storm of fury. 
As my eyes opened involuntarily, I saw his strong hand grasp the slender neck of the fair woman and pull her back. Her blue eyes transformed with fury, the white teeth champing with rage, and the fair cheeks blazing with passion. But the Count, never did I imagine such wrath and fury, even to the demons of the pit. His eyes were positively blazing. The red light in them was lurid as if the flames of hell fire blazed behind them. His face was deathly pale, and the lines of it were hard like drawn wires. The thick eyebrows that met over the nose now seemed like a heaving bar of white-hot metal. The fierce sweep of his arm, he hurled the woman from him, and then motioned to the other, as though he were beating her back. In a voice, which though low and almost in a whisper, seemed to cut through the air and then ring round the room, he said, How dare you! thrown upon the floor, and which moved as though there was some living thing within it. For answer, he nodded his head. One of the women jumped forward and opened it. If my ears did not deceive me, there was a gasp and a low wail of a smothered child. The women closed round, whilst I was aghast with horror, but as I looked, they disappeared, and with them the dreadful bag. There was no door near them and they could not have passed me without my noticing. They simply seemed to fade into the rays of the moonlight and pass out through the window, for I could see outside the dim, shadowy forms for a moment before they entirely faded away. Then the horror overcame me, and I sank down, unconscious. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. I am your host, Justin, the Ghoul Man, and I'm joined by Tommy, and we're talking about Dracula tonight. We've started counting down the best Draculas ever, at least according to me. So far, we had at number five, Nicolas Cage, and at number four, Jonathan Reese Myers, from the television show Dracula back in 2013. Now we're going to move into one of the better Dracula stories that I ever told or ever saw, and that is Dracula Untold. Coming in at number three is Luke Evans' Dracula. Now this is Dracula. He doesn't have to be charming because this is kind of uh, Dracula's story from the very beginning into how he becomes Dracula. 
And uh, some of the storylines that I really like out of it is that he chose to become Dracula, not only to defend his country, because he is Vlad the Impaler, but to save his wife and to save his son, because Vlad was a Turkish hostage, and he finally goes back and becomes king of Transylvania. And some years go by, and the Turks are ready to go to war, and they are coming to claim Luke's or they're coming to claim Vlad's son as take him as a political hostage, train him to be a warrior and do the things that his dad did to defend his country. And he doesn't want any part of it. And now they know there's a vampire or some kind of crazy creature that lives up in the mountains. So Luke seeks out this monster because those who enter reek of fear and you are sent The silver offends me, cloak it from my sight. What kind of man crawls into his own grave in search of hope? Hmm? A desperate one. The Turks threatened to destroy my kingdom. A power like yours. I could stop them. Save my people. Save my family. How supremely noble, Lord Impaler. House Dracul, son of the devil. You're mistaken. It means son of the dragon, protector of the innocent. Do your people know how many innocents you have killed? Was it hundreds? Lie to me again, and I'll open you from your belly to your brain and feed you your intestines. Thousands. And when you put them to the stake, what did you feel? Shame? Horror? Power? Answer me! Nothing. I felt nothing. A greater crime than the act itself. Then why spill blood if not for the pleasure of it? Because men do not fear swords. They feel monsters. They run from them. By putting one village to the stake, I spared ten more. Sometimes the world no longer needs a hero. Sometimes what it needs is a monster. And you believe you know what it is to be a monster? Hmm? So now he meets Charles Dance's character, who's just kind of a vampire that's been waiting, he's been imprisoned, and he finally has his way out. Dance's character knew he wouldn't have to manipulate the situation. He knew the distress of defending his kingdom would ultimately break Evans. Now, of course, the movie sees him struggle with not eating blood for three human days or for three days. And finally, it's when his wife dies that he drains her blood and becomes Dracula himself. And when he becomes his full vampiric form, he unleashes hell on these Turks. And they have no clue what to do. And even when they do discover... Like his best, not really his best friend, but the person he grew up with, who learns that silver really harms him. Even that was not enough to stop him. And now this is what was disappointing to me, was that we got ourselves a very good Dracula. Luke Evans did really good. He scared the Turks out of their mind. But at the end, when Charles Dance's character is freed, 
we we see that Dance and Dracula are going to have to uh, have an encounter at some point in time. Uh, we see this hundreds of years after Dracula, but we never got that movie. Partly because people didn't go see this one. And it's a disappointment. I, I, I want to say, let, let's clarify things up. I did see this movie in theaters. And at first, I was not a very big fan of it. It would take a couple years for me to uh, rewatch it again and go, you know what? That was a stronger movie than I thought it was. And that was a much better Dracula than I've seen in a long time. Now, Luke has a hard mountain to climb here because these next two Draculas are way up there in the fan levels. These are the actors that supplanted Bela Lugosi, Frank Langella, and Christopher Lee. And the first one of those two, now I struggled with who was going to be number one and number two, uh, and, and it took a couple scenes for me to realize who truly is number one. But number two, Gary Oldman, the Dracula from the 90s movies with Keanu Reeves. Okay, Keanu is the sticking point for this movie. His bad English accent did him no favors, but all is forgiven and forgotten with the performance of Gary Oldman as Dracula. He was charming. He was seductive. He was everything Dracula should be. Not, not as scary as some could be, but you had the elements of there. You knew you didn't want to mess with this guy. And then he had all the other abilities, the change into bats, the wolf, the cloud of fog and all the other stuff, the way he controlled every scene, even up till his death. That was amazing. And it was one of Gary Oldman's best performances. He's a great actor. And I've seen him play some villains. Like he played a good one in the Red Riding Hood movie where he's the werewolf hunter. But when I think of Gary Oldman, it's either Dracula or Commissioner Gordon. I have a lot of memories, fond memories of this version of Dracula because I saw this as a teenager, as a you know, high school student, and I thought it was rather slow, and, and it was not really my cup of tea at that point in time. But then when I finally sat down and watched it and got the good story of it, it was like reading the book, which I still have to do. Uh, I've heard a lot of people refer to this one as one of the closest movies or one of the closest adaptations of the book. But it's just amazing to see all the different looks we got of Gary Oldman. We got him as the old man in the manor. We got him as the almost dead vampire. The makeup effects in this movie was absolute amazing. And then you add his acting skills, that makes him number two. Because, so here, here's how I arrived to him number two. Because when you say Dracula, you got to think, who's the first person they picture? Who's the first person they picture when they see Dracula? I, I know most people are Bella Lugosi. Some will see Gary Oldman. But I don't. That's why he is number two. So we're going to go ahead and go back to our creature feature for tonight. And when I, we come back, I am going to reveal my number one Dracula of all time. Episode 4, Escape. Jonathan Harker is a prisoner in the Castle Dracula. 
On this morning he awakes, as from a dream. During the night, the Count has saved him from falling victim to the bloody lust of the Brides of Dracula. I awoke in my own bed. If it be that I have not dreamt, the Count must have carried me here. I tried to satisfy myself on the subject, but could not arrive at any unquestionable result. To be sure, there were several small evidences, such as that my clothes were folded and laid by in a manner which is not my habit. My watch was still unwound, and I am rigorously accustomed to wind it last thing before going to bed, and many such details. But these things are no proof, for they may have been evidences that my mind was not as usual. And from some cause or another, I had certainly been much upset. And now I am captured by the thought of those awful women who were, who are, waiting to suck my blood. I have been down to look at that room again in daylight. The door was closed and locked, and it had been so forcibly driven against the jam that part of the woodwork was splintered. I fear it was no dream, and must act on this surmise. Who is there? It is I, my friend. Yes. Well, uh, do, do come in. You will do me one favor, Mr. Harker. You will write three letters. One saying that your work here was nearly done and that you should start home within a few days. Another that you are starting on the next morning from the time of the letter. And the third that you had left the castle and arrived safely at Bistritz. It seems an odd request. Postings for mail are few and uncertain. Your writing now would ensure ease of mind to your friends. These letters will be held by the postal courier. But uh, my actual movements may not match those stated in the letters. I can easily hold their mailing should you choose to extend your visit to my Oh. Uh, no. Perhaps you're right. It is settled. The letters will be mailed according to their dates. Their dates? The first should be June 12, the second June 19, and the third June 29. God help me. I now know the span of my life. He knows that I know too much, and that I must not live lest I be dangerous to him. There is a chance of escape, or, at any rate, of being able to send word home. A band of Sgaini have come to the castle and are encamped in the courtyard. 
Tepe are gypsies. There are thousands of them in Hungary and Transylvania who are almost outside all law. They attach themselves to some great noble and call themselves by his name. Save for superstition, they are fearless and without religion. I have already spoken to them through my window to begin acquaintanceship. They took their hats off and made obeisance and many signs, which, however, I could not understand any more than I could their spoken language. I shall write two letters, and will try to get the gypsies to post them. One letter to Mina, explaining my situation, written in shorthand, which the Count cannot read. The other to Mr. Hawkins, to communicate with Mina. I have given the letters. I threw them through the bars of my window with a gold piece and made what signs I could to have them posted. The man who took them pressed them to his heart and bowed and then put them in his cap. With this I stole back to the study and have begun to read. To save my own life, I can do no more. A moment of your Enter, then. The Tzkeni have given me these, of which, though I know not whence they come, I shall, of course, take care. See, one is from you, and to my friend Peter Hawkins. The other, the other is made of strange symbols. It is a vile thing, an outrage upon friendship. Yes, of course. So, my friend, you are tired. Get to bed. There is the surest rest. I may not have the pleasure to talk tonight, since there are many labors to me. But you will sleep, I pray. I passed to my room with the thought that I would provide myself with some paper and envelopes from my bag and keep them in my pocket, so that I might write in case I should get another opportunity. But again a surprise, again a shock. Every scrap of paper was gone, and with them all my notes, my memoranda relating to railways and travel, my letter of credit, in fact all that might be useful to me were I once outside the castle. I then made a search of the wardrobe where I had placed my clothes. The suit in which I had traveled was gone, and my overcoat. As soon as I dared, I ran up the winding stair and looked out of the window which opened south. I thought I would watch for the Count, for there is something going on. In a short while, my watch was rewarded. I drew back and watched carefully. 
and saw the whole man emerge. It was a new shock to me to find that he had on the suit of clothes which I had worn whilst traveling here. This, then, is his new scheme of evil, that he will allow others to see me and leave evidence that I have been seen in the towns or villages posting my own letters. I decided to wait for the Count's return, and for a long time sat doggedly at the window. When a couple of hours had passed, I saw something stirring below. It was the Count, and now he carried a bag. It was the same heavy bag I had seen before with those ghastly women. I could see that the bag was not empty. This villain had once again claimed a small child from the village. Frolok! Stregvgolok! It was from below, in the courtyard. There, indeed, was a woman with disheveled hair holding her hands over her heart as one distressed with running. She was leaning against a corner of the gateway. When she saw my face at the window, she threw herself forward and shouted in a voice laden with menace. Monster! Give me my child! Can you help me? I am a prisoner! Beast! Vampire! She accused me. Then I realized the truth. The Count, wearing my clothes, had let himself be seen robbing this woman of her child. Even if I could escape the castle, should I show myself in the village, my death would be swift and terrible. Oh, madam, it was not I. And the howling of the wolves was but short. Before long, they streamed away singly, licking their lips. I could not pity her, for I knew now what had become of her child, and she was better dead. Then, from the Count's room, I heard something like a sharp wail quickly suppressed. And then there was silence, deep, awful silence, which chilled me. With a beating heart, I tried the door, but I was locked in my prison and could do nothing. I sat down and simply cried. Fifth of June, morning. No man knows till he has suffered from the night how sweet and how dear to his heart and eye the morning can be. When the sun grew high this morning, it struck the top of the great gateway opposite my window. The high spot which it touched seemed to me as if the dove from the ark had lighted there. 
My fear fell from me, as if it had been a vaporous garment which dissolved in the warmth. I must take action of some sort whilst the courage of the day is upon me. Last night one of my post-dated letters went to post, the first of that fatal series which is to blot out the very traces of my existence from the earth. Let me not think of it. It is time for action. It has always been at night time that I have been molested or threatened or in some way in danger or in fear. I have not yet seen the Count in the daylight. Can it be that he sleeps when others wake? That he may be awake whilst they sleep? If I could only get into his room. But there is no possible way. The door is always locked. No way for me. Yes, there is a way, if one dares to take it. Where his body has gone, why not may another go? I have seen him myself crawl from his window. Why should not I imitate him and go in by his window? The chances are desperate, but my need is more desperate still. I shall risk it. At the worst, it can only be death, and a man's death is not a calf's, and the dreaded hereafter may still be open to me. God help me in my task. I have made the effort, and God helping me, have come safely back to this room. Whilst my courage was fresh, I went straight to the window, and at once got outside on the narrow ledge of stone, and ventured out on the desperate way. I knew pretty well the direction and distance of the Count's window, and made for it as well as I could. In what seemed no time at all, I was there, at the Count's window, and slid silently into his chamber. It was barely furnished, with odd things, and I found a great heap of gold in one corner. Gold of all kinds, Roman and rich and Austrian and Hungarian and Greek and Turkish money, covered with a film of dust as though it had been laid long in the ground. None of it that I noticed was less than 300 years old. At one corner of the room was a heavy door. It was open and led through a stone passage to a circular stairway, which went steeply down, lit only by loopholes in the heavy masonry. At the bottom, there was a dark, tunnel-like passage, through which came a deathly, sickly odor. At last, I found myself in an old ruined chapel, which had evidently been used as a graveyard. The roof was broken, and in two places were steps leading to vaults, ground had recently been dug over, and the earth placed in great wooden boxes, manifestly those which had been brought by the Slovaks. I made search for an escapeway, but there was none. I went down even into the vaults, where the dim light struggled, although to do so was a dread to my very soul. Into two of these I went, but saw nothing except fragments of old coffins and piles of dust. In the third, however, I made a discovery. 
there, in one of the great boxes, of which there were fifty in all, on a pile of newly dug earth, lay the Count. He was either dead or asleep. I could not say which, for the eyes were open and stony, but without the glassiness of death. And the cheeks had the warmth of life through all their pallor. The lips were red as ever. There was no sign of movement. No pulse, no breathing, no beating of the heart. I bent over him and tried to find any sign of life, but in vain. He could not have lain there long, for the earthy smell would have passed away in a few hours. By the side of the box was its cover, pierced with holes here and there. I thought he might have the keys on him, but when I went to search, I saw the dead eyes, and in them, dead though they were, such a look of hate, though unconscious of me or my presence, that I fled from the place, and leaving the Count's room by the window, crawled again up the castle wall. Regaining my room, I threw myself panting upon the bed and tried to think. Twenty-ninth of June. Today is the date of my last letter, and the Count has taken steps to prove that it was genuine, for again last night I saw him leave the castle by the same window and in my clothes. As he went down the wall, lizard fashion, I wished I had a gun or some lethal weapon that I might destroy him. But I fear that no weapon wrought alone by man's hand would have any effect on him. Soon after, I felt my exhaustion and laid down to dreamless sleep. I was awakened by the Count, who looked at me as grimly as a man can look. Tomorrow, my friend, we must part. You return to your beautiful England. Such a pleasant thought. And I shall not be here, but all shall be ready for your journey. In the morning come the Skaney, who have labors of their own here, and also come some Slovaks. When they have gone, my carriage shall come for you, and shall bear you to the Borgo Pass, to meet the diligence from Bukovina to Bistritz. But I am in hopes that I shall see more of you at Castle Dracula. Why may I not go tonight? Because, dear sir, my coachman and horses are away on a mission. But I would walk with pleasure. I want to get away at once. What of your baggage? Baggage? Tell me, my friend, what clothing would you suggest I carry? You English have a saying which is close to my heart, for its spirit is that which rules our land as well. Welcome the coming, speed the parting guest. How quaint. I see. Come with me, my dear young friend, 
Not an hour shall you wait in my house against your will. So sad am I at your going, and that you so suddenly desire it. Come. With stately gravity, he, with the lamp, preceded me down the stairs and along the hall. When we had reached the great door, he suddenly stopped. The wolves, with champing teeth and red jaws, came in through the open door. I knew then that to struggle at the moment against the Count was useless. With such allies as these at his command, I could do nothing. Still, the door continued slowly to open, and the wolves came closer. Only the Count's body stood in the gap. Shut the door. I shall wait until morning. May I go to my room? As I have said, you are free to move as you wish, within or without the walls of my home. The last I saw of Count Dracula was his kissing his hand to me, with a red light of triumph in his eyes and with a smile of which the devil himself would be proud. I was in my room and about to lie down. I thought I heard a whispering at my door. I went to it softly and listened. Unless my ears deceived me, I heard the voice of the Count. was a ripple of laughter, and I swear I could hear the terrible women licking their lips. I came back to my room and threw myself on my knees. Is it then so near the end? Thirtieth of June, morning. At last I felt that subtle change in the air and knew that the morning had come. Then came the welcome cockcrow and I felt that I was safe. Once again my fears melted away and I determined to escape. Without a pause, I rushed up to the east window and scrambled down the wall as before into the Count's room. It was empty, but that was as I expected. I knew now well enough where to find the monster I sought. The great box was in the same place, and I knew I must reach the body for the key, so I raised the lid and laid it back against the wall. And then I saw something which filled my very soul with horror. There lay the Count, 
but looking as if his youth had been half renewed, for the white hair and moustache were changed to dark iron grey. The cheeks were fuller, and the white skin seemed ruby red underneath. The mouth was redder than ever, for on the lips were gouts of fresh blood, which trickled from the corners of the mouth and ran over the chin and neck. Even the deep burning eye seemed set amongst swollen flesh, for the lids and pouches underneath were bloated. It seemed as if the whole awful creature was simply gorged with blood. He lay like a filthy leech, exhausted with his repletion. I shuddered as I bent over to touch him, and every sense in me revolted at the contact. But I had to search, or I was lost. I felt all over the body, but could find no key. Then I stopped and looked at the Count. There was a mocking smile on the bloated face which seemed to drive me mad. This was the being I was helping to transfer to London, where amongst its teeming millions he may satiate his lust for blood. terrible desire came upon me to rid the world of such a monster. There was no lethal weapon at hand, but I seized a shovel which the workmen had been using to fill the cases, and lifting it high, struck with the edge downward at the hateful face. But as I did so, the head turned, and the eyes fell full upon me with all their blaze of basilisk horror. The sight paralyzed me, and the shovel turned in my hand and glanced from the face, merely making a deep gash above the forehead. The shovel fell from my hand across the box, and as I pulled it away, the flange of the blade caught the edge of the lid, which fell over again and hid the horrid thing from my sight. The last glimpse I had was of the bloated face, blood-stained and fixed with a grin of malice which would have held its own in the nethermost hell. Turn to my room. There is in the passage below a sound of many tramping feet and the crash of weights being set down heavily. Doubtless the boxes, with their freight of earth. There is a sound of hammering. It is the box being nailed down. Now I can hear the heavy feet tramping again along the hall, with many other idle feet coming behind them. The door is shut. The chains rattle. There is a grinding of the key in the lock. I can hear the key withdraw. Then another door opens and shuts. I hear the creaking of lock and bolt. I'm alone in the castle with those awful women. No. Mina is a woman, and these creatures are not. They are devils of the pit. I shall not remain alone with them. I shall try to scale the castle walls farther than I have yet attempted. I shall take some of the gold with me, lest I want it later. I pray God that I may find a way from this dreadful place, away from this cursed land where the devil and his children still walk. Goodbye, all. Goodbye, my fair Mina.
Welcome back to Frightening Tales. I'm your host, Justin, the Ghoul Man Redman, and I'm joined by Tommy, Ta Tommy the Terminator, <clears throat> Tommy the Tominator. <laughs> so, Tommy, now that we're to my number one Dracula of all time, who did I forget? Or who is your favorite Dracula? Man, I don't know. I like Dracula, but I like other vampires much, much more. Uh, but but if, you, if you're going to corner me on this, who do I see when I see Dracula? That would be the, uh, the, the one from uh, Wolfman's Got Nards movie. Tommy, you were reading my mind because that is it. The Monster Squatch Dracula, Duncan Rhaegar. He is the best Dracula ever. And I'm going to tell you a reason why. First... First, he has the classical Dracula look. Uh, it's not a Universal movie, but they certainly kept close to the original Universal monsters. The Gill Man, the Mummy, the Wolfman. All are homage to the Universal classics. Even Duncan Rhaegar and Frankenstein. They're very close, but because of copyright, they couldn't quite call them that or look that way. Duncan Rhaegar gives us a very stoic Dracula, except for when he needs to be ruthless. And when I mean ruthless, I mean this. Give me the amulet, you bitch! Now, if you've watched the documentary Wolfman Got Nards, you'll know they had to recut that scene because the girl screamed too loud. The actor that played Phoebe, she was really terrified. She didn't know he was about to do that. And they kept it a surprise from her so they would get a real reaction from her. And she gave them a reaction they didn't quite expect. Another reason why I think Duncan Rhaegar makes the greatest Dracula ever. This Dracula is very smart. He knows about Frankenstein. He knows how to revive him. He even has Frankenstein under his control, which we don't know. He's able to unify all the monsters and summon them all to this one place just to get this amulet so they can take over the world. Didn't expect on the monster squad there. But overall, I love this movie. I watch it every time I get it, and I'm impressed by his performance every time. So when you say Dracula or Hey, I'm going to be Count Dracula for Halloween. I think of Duncan Rhaegar. He is, to me, is the best Dracula of all time. Now, if you have any other suggestions or you think I might have missed something, send me an email, kghoulradio at gmail.com. Let's go ahead and go back to our creature feature for tonight. When we come back, I might have something else to talk about. Episode 5. Whitby by the Sea. Jonathan Harker has traveled to Transylvania and become a prisoner in Castle Dracula. Meanwhile, Count Dracula plans his journey to England. Our story now returns to England. In Whitby by the Sea, Lucy Westenray awaits the arrival of her dear friend, Mina Murray, Jonathan Harker's fiancée. But just now, at a London insane asylum, Dr. John Seward records the admission of a new patient. R. M. Renfield, a tart. Sanguine temperament, great physical strength, 
morbidly excitable. Periods of gloom ending in some fixed idea which I cannot make out. I presume that the sanguine temperament itself and the disturbing influence end in a mentally accomplished finish. Possibly dangerous man. Probably dangerous if unselfish. In selfish men, caution is as secure an armor for their foes as for themselves. Letter from Mina Murray to Lucy Weston Ray, May 30th. My dearest Lucy, I am overjoyed with your letter. The news of your engagement fills me with happiness. I shall expect a full report upon my arrival in Whitby. I have just had a few hurried lines from Jonathan from Transylvania. He is well and will be returning in about a week. I am longing to hear all his news. It must be so nice to see strange countries. There is the ten o'clock bell. Goodbye. Your loving Mina. The case of Renfield grows more interesting the more I get to understand the man. He has certain qualities very largely developed. Selfishness, secrecy, and purpose. I wish I could get at what is the object of the latter. He seems to have some settled scheme of his own. But what it is, I do not know. His redeeming quality is a love of animals, though indeed he has such curious turns in it that I sometimes imagine he is only abnormally cruel. His pets are of odd sorts. He has at present such a quantity of flies that I have had myself to deal with the matter. Mr. Renfield, may I speak with you? One moment, please. Yes, Doctor? Did you just eat a fly? Mm -hmm. Mr. Renfield, I forbid you to eat flies. Oh, but, Doctor, you must understand that to eat the fly is very good and very wholesome. It is life, strong life, and gives life to me. Be that as it may, you are forbidden to eat flies. Mm. As a matter of fact, I've come to speak to you regarding these flies of yours. They have become a bit of a nuisance. Lord knows there are enough flies in this place without your putting scraps of food at the window to attract more. Hmm. May I have three days? I shall clear them away. I suppose that would be all right. Hmm. After three days, I return to Rinfield's cell. To my amazement, he has turned his mind now to spiders, and he has got several very big fellows in a box. He keeps feeding them with his flies and the number of the latter is becoming sensibly diminished, although he has used half his food in attracting more flies from outside to his room. His spiders are now becoming as great a nuisance as his flies, and today I told him that he must get rid of them. You see, Mr. Renfield, to you these spiders are pets, but to everyone else they are a rather unattractive father. Yes, yes, of course. What is that you're writing? Totals. Lives do add up, you know. Let me see that. What are these numbers? My accounts. What was that? Is that a sparrow? Mr. Winfield, really, now you've got a sparrow? Just one. How on earth did you attract a sparrow? With spiders. I see.
There is a method in Renfield's madness. He had managed to get a sparrow and tame it. His means of taming is simple, for already the spiders have diminished. Those that do remain, however, are well fed, for he still brings in the flies by tempting them with his food. He has now a whole colony of sparrows, and his flies and spiders are almost obliterated. When I came in, he ran to me and said he wanted to ask me a great favor. A very, very great favor. And what might that be? A kitten. A nice little sleek, playful kitten that I can play with and teach and feed. But wouldn't you rather have a cat than a kitten? Oh, yes, I would like a cat. I only asked for a kitten lest you should refuse me a cat. No one would refuse me a kitten, would they? I'm afraid, Mr. Renfield, that at present I fear it would not be possible. Oh, Doctor, please, I implore you. My very salvation depends upon it. I am sorry, but I must refuse. I shall return tomorrow, and I trust that you will have diminished these animals to a proper number. I must remind you, Mr. Renfield, that you are in an asylum, not a zoo. Exclusive to The Daily Telegraph, August 8th. One of the greatest storms on record has just been experienced here, with results both strange and unique. Yesterday, shortly before 10 o'clock, the stillness of the air grew quite oppressive. Without warning, the tempest broke. The waves rose in growing fury, till in a very few minutes, the lately glassy sea was like a roaring and devouring monster. White-crested waves beat madly on the level sands and rushed up the shelving cliffs. Others broke over the piers and with their spume swept the lanterns of the lighthouses which rise from the end of either pier of Whitby Harbor. The wind roared like thunder and blew with such force that it was with difficulty that even strong men kept their feet or clung with grim clasp to the iron stanchions. Here and there a fishing boat with a rag of sail running madly for shelter before the blast. Now and again the white wings of a storm-tossed seabird. On the summit of the east cliff, the Whitby searchlight was made ready and soon swept over the surface of the sea. Before long, the searchlight discovered, some distance away, a schooner with all sails set. Between her and the port lay the great flat reef, and with the wind blowing from its present quarter, it would be quite impossible that she should fetch the entrance of the harbor. Then came a rush of sea fog, a mass of dank mist, which seemed to close on all things like a gray pall and left available to men only the organ of hearing. The wind suddenly shifted to the northeast, and the remnant of the sea fog melted in the blast, and then between the piers... Leaping from wave to wave as it rushed at headlong speed, swept the strange schooner before the blast with all sails set and gained the safety of the harbor. The searchlight followed her, and a shudder ran through all who saw her, for lashed to the helm was a corpse with drooping head, which swung horribly to and fro at each motion of the ship. No other form could be seen on deck at all, 
great awe came on all as they realized that the ship, as if by a miracle, had found the harbor, unsteered save by the hand of a dead man. But, strangest of all, the very instant the shore was touched, an immense dog sprang up on deck from below, as if shot up by the concussion, and running forward, jumped from the bow on the sand, making straight for the nearby churchyard, and disappeared among the ancient flat tombstones. Not often can such a sight have been seen. The dead man was simply fastened by his hands, tied one over the other, to a spoke of the wheel. Between the inner hand and the wood was a crucifix, the set of beads on which it was fastened being around both wrists and the wheel, and all kept fast by the binding cords. July. Visited Renfield very early, before the attendant went his rounds. Found him up and humming a tune. He was spreading out his sugar, which he had saved in the window, and was manifestly beginning his fly-catching again, and beginning it cheerfully and with good grace. I looked around for his birds, and not seeing them, asked him where they were. He replied, without turning round, that they had all flown away. There were a few feathers about the room, and on his pillow, a drop of blood. I said nothing, but went and told the keeper to report to me if there were anything odd about him during the day. The attendant has just been to me to say that Renfield has been very sick and has disgorged a whole lot of feathers. Apparently he has eaten his birds. My homicidal maniac is of a peculiar kind. I shall have to invent a new classification for him and call him a zoophagus or life-eating maniac. What he desires is to absorb as many lives as he can, and he has laid himself out to achieve it in a cumulative way. Mina? Oh, Mina, I'm here. Oh, Lucy, dear. Mina, I'm so happy to see you. There's so much to tell you. And I insist upon hearing every last word. Come along. Whitley has the quaintest little cafe. We'll have tea and toast while I tell you the news. And you must tell me of Jonathan and this great adventure it is. Now, tell me everything about him. Mr. Homewood, he's the Honorable Arthur Homewood, only son of Lord Godalming. <laughs> he's coming up here very shortly, as soon as he can leave town. For his father is not very well, and I'm counting the moments till he comes. A lord, no less. It's only proper, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> and how is your mother? Oh, you must not listen to mother. 
I dare say she expects that some night I will rise from my bed and walk off the seawall. Lucy, you shock me. Oh, it's nothing, really. Only that the sea air has revived my childhood habit of sleepwalking. We must be careful. Of course we will. Now, what news do you have from Jonathan? I'm beginning to worry, Lucy. Just yesterday, dear Mr. Hawkins, who is always so kind, sent me a letter from him. It is only a line dated from Castle Dracula and says that he is just starting for home. That is not like Jonathan. I do not understand it, and it makes me uneasy. What do you mean, uneasy? I don't know, really. Why do you ask? Well, it's just that lately I've had a strange feeling, a sense of impending darkness coming over everything. Journal, August 9. Still no news from Jonathan. It is three weeks since his letter to Mr. Hawkins, and I have become quite worried. And now the weather has turned and added to the overall gloom. Last night was very threatening, and the fishermen say that we are in for a storm. Everything is grey, except the green grass, which seems like emerald amongst the earthy rock. The sea is tumbling in over the shallows and the sandy flats with a roar. The horizon is lost in a grey mist. All is vastness. The clouds are piled up like giant rocks and there is a brool over the sea that sounds like some presage of doom. Dark figures are on the beach here and there, sometimes half shrouded in the mist. The fishing boats are racing for home and rise and dip in the groundswell as they sweep into the harbour. Mina Murray's Diary, August 9th, 3 a.m. I fear for Lucy's life. From the depths of sleep, I suddenly became broad awake and sat up with a horrible sense of fear upon me and of some feeling of emptiness around me. I lit a match and found that Lucy was not in her bed, so threw on some clothes and went through the house looking for her. Coming to the hall door and finding it open, I took a big heavy shawl and ran out. The clock was striking one as I was in the crescent and there was not a soul in sight. I ran along the north terrace but could see no sign of the white figure which I expected. At the edge of the west cliff, above the pier, I looked across the harbour. As a cloud passed, I could see the ruins of the abbey coming into view. And as the edge of a narrow band of light as sharp as a sword cut moved along, the church and the churchyard became gradually visible. And there, on our favourite seat, the silver light of the moon struck a half-reclining figure snowy white. The coming of the cloud was too quick for me to see much, for shadow shot down on light almost immediately. But it seemed to me as though something dark stood behind the seat where the white figure shone, and bent over it. What it was, whether man or beast, I could not tell. 
I did not wait to catch another glance, but flew down the steep steps to reach the east cliff. When I got almost to the top, I could see the seat and the white figure, for I was now close enough to distinguish it even through the spells of shadow. There was undoubtedly something, long and black, bending over the half-reclining white figure. I called in fright, Lucy, Lucy! And something raised a head, and from where I was, I could see a white face and red gleaming eyes. Lucy did not answer, and I ran on to the entrance of the churchyard. The church was between me and the seat, and for a minute or so I lost sight of her. When I came in view again, the cloud had passed, and the moonlight struck so brilliantly that I could see Lucy half reclining with her head laying back over the seat. She was quite alone, and there was not a sign of any living thing about. When I bent over her, I could see that she was still asleep. Her lips were parted and she was breathing, not softly as usual with her, but in long, heavy gasps, as though striving to get her lungs full at every breath. As I came close, she put up her hand in her sleep and pulled the collar of her nightdress close around her throat. I woke her gently, and we made our way home without meeting a soul. The next day, Lucy made no mention of our adventure by the sea, but soon after breakfast excused herself and went out. I followed and watched as she went to the very bench where I had found her the previous night. I joined her and sat. Oh, hello, Mina. Lucy, may I ask, did you dream at all last night? I didn't quite dream... But it all seemed to be real. I only wanted to be here, in this spot. I don't know why, for I was afraid of something. I don't know what. I remember passing through the streets and over the bridge. I heard a lot of dogs howling. The whole town seemed as if it must be full of dogs, all howling at once. Then I had a vague memory of something long and dark, with red eyes, just as we saw in the sunset, and something very sweet and very bitter all around me at once. And then I seemed sinking into deep green water, and there was a singing in my ears, as I have heard there is to drowning men. And then everything seemed passing away from me. My soul seemed to go out from my body and float about the air. I seemed to remember that once the West Lighthouse was right under me, and then there was a sort of agonizing feeling, as if I were in an earthquake. And I came back and found you shaking my body. 
saw you do it before I felt you. Then she began to laugh. It all seemed a little uncanny to me, and I listened to her breathlessly. I did not quite like it, and thought it better not to keep her mind on the subject. So we drifted on to other subjects, and Lucy was like her old self again. When we got home, the fresh breeze had braced her up, and her pale cheeks were really more rosy. Her mother rejoiced when she saw her. And we all spent a very happy evening together. Nineteen August. Strange and sudden change in Renfield last night. About eight o'clock, he began to get excited and sniff about as a dog does when setting. The attendant was struck by his manner, and knowing my interest in him, called for me. <laughs> Good evening, Mr. Renfield. <gasps> Have we nothing to speak of this evening? I don't want to talk to you. You don't count now. The master is at hand. Hmm. I see you've begun your little zoo again. I say, may I see your spiders? I trust you've got some large fellows. Bother them all! I don't care a pin about them. What? You don't mean to tell me you don't care about spiders? The bride maidens rejoice the eyes that wait the coming of the bride, but when the bride draweth nigh, then the maidens shine not to the eyes that are filled. The mystery grows. Ringfield would not explain himself, but remained obstinately seated on his bed all the time I was with him. Returning to this office, I had lain tossing about and. Had heard the clock strike only twice when the night watchman came to me, sent up from the ward to say that Renfield had escaped. The attendant was called by the sound of the window being wrenched out, saw that the cell was empty, and had at once sent for me. At Renfield's cell, I saw the torn window casement, and looking out, could see in the distance our patient scaling the high wall which separates our grounds from the grounds of Carfax, the deserted estate which stands along our property. Crossing the wall and dropping down on the other side, I could see Renfield's figure just disappearing behind the angle of the house. So I ran after him. On the far side of the house, I found him pressed close against the old iron-bound oak door of the chapel. He was talking, apparently to someone. Drawing near, I heard him say, "I am here to do your bidding, master. I am your slave." And you will reward me, or I shall be faithful. I have worshipped you long and afar off. Now that you are near, I await your commands, and you will not pass me by, will you, dear master? In your distribution of good things, they come for me now, and I shall be patient. I await your command.
And now it's time for this week's Burger's Frightening Tale. We're going all the way up the coast to Connecticut, to the New London Ledge Lighthouse, sitting right there in the mouth of the Thames River. The New London Ledge Lighthouse is supposedly haunted by the ghost of Ernie, which happens to be a past lighthouse keeper named John Randolph. The lighthouse was built back in 1909, and during the 1920s or 30s, Mr. Randolph was the current lighthouse keeper. Now, he had a tragic twist in life. His wife left him for a ferry boat captain. He didn't handle this news very well, so he leapt to his death, and he has reportedly haunted this lighthouse ever since. Only he doesn't identify as John Randolph. He identifies as Ernie. Now, what does Ernie like to do as a ghost? Well, he likes to sound the foghorn. He likes to mysteriously rearrange locked drawers, tools up and disappear and then reappear in the most odd places. Bed sheets fly off the bed. Doors open and close. Radio stations go on and off. TV turns itself on and off, changes channels. You know, all the great stuff that ghosts love to do. Now, there are sightings of a tall bearded man in a slicker and rain hat, which is believed to be his ghost. But how many lighthouse keepers do we know are bearded, wears a slicker, and a rain hat? I mean, that's like the common stereotype image of a, of a lighthouse keeper. Visitors often report smelling dead fish when they visit the lighthouse. Now, again, this is a lighthouse in the middle of a river, probably a big fishing community. It's always going to smell like fish. There's the typical cold spots throughout the areas. Now, I mean, that's common with our ghost sightings that we see. There's also local folklore that suggests that boats and ships drift when someone speaks ill of the ghostly keeper. So I guess he just kind of walks across the harbor, goes to the ship, and makes the ship drift a little bit. Now, Ernie is pretty selective as to who he reveals himself to, mostly women and children. Uh, that kind of, uh, I guess, normal of what's keeping him locked into that house was the abandonment of his wife. There are times that he's a helpful ghost. He'll wash floors and windows, which I guess when you make that much of a mess and nobody's there to pick it up, you got to do it on your own. Ernie has attracted the attention of many ghost hunting teams, including the ghost hunters crew from TAPS. Let's see what kind of evidence they found. I can't find the ghost hunters episode of the New London Lighthouse, but I did find one from Most Haunted. Now, this show uh, has some, uh, some issues with it. Uh, when it comes to controlled groups and experiments, they know absolutely diddly. Nothing. Not at all. There's no control groups. There's a lot of questionable stuff that they did. And you're just like, how are you real paranormal investigators? So let's start with, they go out there. The place is pretty much abandoned. It's not the museum that it is now. The paint has flaked off the wall and different things like that. Uh, you got the, the skeptic out there saying, hey, look, you're out in the middle of the water. You're out in the middle of a harbor. The motion's going to cause a little issue with you. Seagulls are going to make noises. All of the things you need to take into consideration for your investigation. Now, do these people listen to it? Heck no, they didn't listen to him. They got so scared. I mean, one of them... I, I, this is the first time I've ever seen the show Most Haunted. One of them is so scared that any slight noise, she's screaming and heavy breathing and freaking out. And then it's just crazy. You know, this is an old building. It makes noises. It's out in the middle of the ocean or the harbor. It makes noise. So for her to get freaked out was kind of weird. 
And then later on, you got the two guys who like to antagonize ghosts, apparently, from when I did a lookup of the show to see people's reviews of it. They're sitting downstairs and they're like, you hear a noise? Yeah, I hear a noise. Let's whistle at it. So they whistle. And then a few seconds later, oh my, yeah, that's really a ghost mimicking you. Yeah, he's calling you. Any audio editor knows that you could just simply just turn the volume down, fade it a little bit, put another little filter on it, and boom, you instant ghost. The other problem I had was that they're at least the same two guys are sitting downstairs, and all of a sudden the light upstairs, they see through the uh, the, the stairway, goes off. And like, oh, did you see that? The light turned off. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, that was kind of stupid. And then when when that light came back on and they're like, oh, wow, did you see that? Well, first off here, how do we know somebody's not up there in the next level just turning the light switch on and off? I mean, any simple investigator would know you need to go upstairs and look. Of course, conveniently, no camera angle from up there either. You just see them sitting at the stairwell. Light goes on, light goes off. They ask the ghost to do it again. And guess what? The ghost does it for them. That Ernie sure is one uh, compliant ghost. He certainly likes to make his presence known in that one. And then we have the window. Like, like all the windows got a little dowel to keep them open because I guess they're so old they just don't stay open on their own. And a dowel magically just flew out. And then you got the medium who always getting rushed by a ghost. It's like they're climbing up another set of stairs. And the ghost just rushes past him. He's like, oh, did you feel that? Did you feel that wind? <laughs> so to say that this team really did any service to this investigation is not, not no bueno. In fact, the Burgers Investigators Manual has a lot to say about this. And, you know, basically this is a group that doesn't know what they're doing. Besides, if you look back at the, uh, the Paranormality Magazine article we we're talking about, that's not the things that Ernie does. Ernie rips the sheets off a bed. I wanted to see stuff like that. I wanted to see him activate the foghorn. Or at least not really see him activate the foghorn. I wanted to hear the foghorn activate. If you're going to tell me that the ghost does this, this, and this. And the show, I expect to see this, this, and this. I, I don't want some medium going around saying, Oh, I think his name is uh, uh, John R. Yeah. You could have got that from anything. There's enough articles and enough other shows talking about the new London Lighthouse that you've already tainted your evidence. But it's still better than some of the other Ghost Hunter shows that I've seen. And uh, it was amusing. Now, we're going to take a couple steps back to the to Taps when they went out there. Conveniently, all their evidence, the machines that it was all recorded on, was uh, destroyed or corrupted, and they couldn't get any of their evidence. Now, there there is the episode out there, but uh, I have yet to find it. Uh, it. It's streaming on all the things that I don't have, and I'm not planning on getting those services just to find it. There's also been several attempts to exercise the spirit and free him from his eternal torment. Now, how many exorcists do we know that come out there and claim to be exorcists? Well, apparently zero of them have been real exorcists because Ernie is still there causing all the mischief. I think it would be pretty cool to be sitting out there at the dock or in the harbor and hear the foghorn go off and look around and see absolutely no fog. That would be pretty cool. 
hey, if you want to go investigate the lighthouse, go check out Project Oceanology. They offer summer tours that include access to the lighthouse, which gives you the chance to step into Ernie's realm. And of course, you can safely see the lighthouse from a distance. And that concludes this week's Burger Frightening Tale. And you can find this story over at ParanormalityMag.com. It's called The New London Ledge Lighthouse and the Haunting Tales of Ernie. Written by Nicole Whitley. Episode 6. Enter Van Helsing. It has been many weeks since Miss Mina has had word of Jonathan Harker. During this time, Count Dracula has made his way to England and to his foul lair at the Carfax estate. Beside Carfax is the insane asylum directed by Dr. Seward. At the asylum, the patient Renfield is a captive of Dracula's mysterious powers. As our story continues, Miss Mina receives word of Jonathan from a hospital in distant Budapest. Letter from Sister Agatha, Missionary Hospital of St. Joseph and St. Mary, Budapest, to Miss Wilhelmina Murray. 12 August. Dear Madam, I write by desire of Mr. Jonathan Harker who is himself not strong enough to write. He has been under our care for nearly six weeks, suffering from a violent brain fever. He wishes me to convey his love and to say that all of his work is completed. He has had some fearful shock, so says our doctor, and in his delirium his ravings have been dreadful, of wolves and poison and blood, of ghosts and demons. Be careful with him always that there may be nothing to excite him of this kind for a long time to come. The traces of such an illness as his do not lightly die away. We should have written long ago, but we knew nothing of his friends, and there was on him no papers or information of any kind. Be assured that he is well cared for. He has won all hearts by his sweetness and gentleness. He is getting on well, and I have no doubt will in a few weeks be all himself. Yours, with sympathy and all blessings, Sister Agatha. Letter from Mina Harker to Lucy Westenray. My dearest Lucy, I write this as we return to you. I know you will be anxious to hear all that has happened since we parted at the railway station at Whitby. Well, my dear, I got to Hull all right and caught the boat to Hamburg and from there to Budapest. At the hospital, Sister Agatha brought me to Jonathan. I found my dear one, oh, so thin and pale and weak-looking. All the resolution had gone out of his dear eyes, and that quiet dignity which I told you was in his face had vanished. He is only a wreck of himself, and he does not remember anything that has happened to him for a long time past. At least, he wants me to believe so, and I shall never ask. 
when he woke, he did not seem surprised to see me, but simply asked for his coat, and from this took his notebook. As he glanced at the pages, I could see him tremble. After a while, he called me near, raised the book, and said, "The secret is here." I asked him what he meant, but he simply buried his head in his hands and said nothing. After a moment, he fell back, exhausted. I put the book under his pillow and kissed him. The next day, Jonathan awoke somewhat rested and smiling. Then, to my surprise, he insisted that we be married at once. I sat in amazement as he called for the hospital chaplain, declaring that we wished to be married within the hour. This journey has brought great sorrow and great joy. Goodbye for now, my dear Lucy. I shall post this at once. And perhaps write very soon again. Your ever-loving Nina Parker. Doctor Seward's diary. Twenty August. The case of Renfield grows even more interesting. Earlier this evening, the attendant came to tell me that Brinfield was acting a bit strange, so I went down at once to have a look at him. He was still in straight waistcoat and in the padded room, but the suffused look had gone from his face, and his eyes had something of their old pleading—I might almost say—cringing softness. I was satisfied with his present condition and directed him to be released from the straight jacket. The attendants hesitated, and Brinfield had humor enough to see their distrust. For coming close to me, he said in a whisper, all the while looking furtively at them, "They think I could hurt you. Fancy me hurting you, the fools! You and I, we have mutual interests, eh, doctor?" I miss your meaning, Mister Renfield. Yes. Well, you would, wouldn't you? I do not know that we have much in common. Perhaps you would be so kind as to enlighten me. I do not wish to speak of it tonight. I have other interests to attend to.、Hmm. Very well.、Uh, speaking of your other interests, a stray tomcat seems to have adopted the asylum as his new home. I thought perhaps you might like to keep him as a pet. For me? That is correct. You mock me, doctor. I don't take any stock in cats. I have more to think of now, and I can wait. I can wait. After a while, I left him. The attendant tells me that he was quiet until just before dawn, and that he began to get uneasy, and at length violent, until at last he fell into a paroxysm which exhausted him so that he swooned into a sort of coma. Three nights has the same thing happened. Violent all day, then quiet from moonrise to sunrise. I wish I could get some clue to the cause. It would almost seem as if there were some influence which came and went. Ah, a plan. We shall tonight play sane wits against mad ones. He escaped before without our help. Tonight he shall escape with it. We shall give him a chance and have the men ready to follow in case they are required. 
unexpected always happens. How well does Rayleigh knew life? Our bird, when he found the cage open, would not fly. So all our subtle arrangements were for naught. But then, the moment we had rested our guard, he once again made his escape to the grounds of the deserted house at Carfax, and we found him in the same place, pressed against the old chapel door. Yes, Master, yes, I understand. Yes, of course, of course. Wingfield! Get away, you fool! Don't you see there is work to be done? The master is at hand. We have no use for you. You are less than the fly. Get away from that door and go with these men back to your cell. Ha! You! Them! This is not the asylum, doctor. You are not the master here. My dear doctor, you must forgive me. I've been acting like a madman. Gentlemen, good evening. You needn't tie me. I shall go quietly. Letter, Arthur Homewood to Dr. John Seward. John, I want you to do me a favor. Lucy is ill. That is, she has no special disease, but she looks awful and is getting worse every day. I am sure that there is something preying on my dear girl's mind. I am almost distracted when I think of her. I told her I should ask you to see her, and though she demurred at first, she finally consented. You are to attend lunch at the Weston Ray home tomorrow, two o'clock so as not to arouse any suspicion in Mrs. Weston Ray, and after lunch, Lucy will take an opportunity of being alone with you. I shall come in for tea, and we can go away together. I am filled with anxiety and want to consult with you alone as soon as I can after you have seen her. Do not fail. Arthur. Arthur? Oh, John, you've spoken with her. You've examined her. Please, Arthur, calm yourself. Yes, I've just now left her. And? In my opinion, there is no functional disturbance or any malady that I know of. At the same time, I am not by any means satisfied with her appearance. She is woefully different from what she was when I saw her last. Of course, you must bear in mind that I did not have full opportunity of examination, such as I should wish. We went into her boudoir and... As soon as the door was closed, the mask fell from her face and she sank down into a chair with a great sigh and hid her eyes with her hand. Oh, John, I loathe talking about myself. You see, I am your friend, but I am also a doctor, and a doctor's confidence is sacred. I cannot breathe. You cannot breathe? It feels as if hands are gripping my throat. I cannot rest. But your mother comments that you fall into a deep sleep from which you will not be roused. Yes, but I do not rest. I have terrible dreams which frighten me. And yet, I cannot remember them in the least. John, this is terrible. You must help her. I shall write to my old friend and master, Professor Van Helsing of Amsterdam, who knows as much about obscure diseases as anyone in the world. 
I will ask him to come over and will mention to him who you are and your relations to Miss Westenray. Van Helsing is a seemingly arbitrary man, but this is because he knows what he is talking about better than anyone else. He is a philosopher and a metaphysician, and he has, I believe, an absolutely open mind. This, with an iron nerve, a temper of the ice brook, an indomitable resolution, self-command, and toleration exalted from virtues to blessings, and the kindliest and truest heart that beats. I have great confidence in him. I shall ask him to come at once. Yes, sir. I am Van Helsing. Dr. Van Helsing. I have come from Amsterdam. Tonight, I will stay in this place. You, young man, will be so kind as to provide me with your finest room immediately. Your staff shall draw the hot bath, a very hot bath, immediately. Your service shall bring me dinner, roasted beef, potatoes, and a salad of green vegetables. In one hour, you will have a cab waiting for me to take me to the Westernry home in Hillingham. Do you understand? Van Helsing, Doctor, Amsterdam, room, bath, dinner, cab. Will there be anything else, sir? I like you. Yes, sir. You may acquire for me two of your finest Cuban cigars. Yes, sir. One for me, one for you. Well, thank you, sir. Van Helsing, how good to see you. And you as well, my friend. Come, take us out of this night air and tell me why I am here. Well, really, there's nothing more to report beyond what I've already said in my letter. I must say I'm baffled. Do not be confused, my friend. Keep your mind sharp and your eyes open. For your Miss Lucy is in grave danger. Grave danger? Surely you jest. This is no jest, but life and death. Perhaps more. What do you mean by that? Later, we shall compare notes. Now, take me to Miss Lucy. Lucy, this is Dr. Van Helsing. Hello, Doctor. Miss Lucy. I fear that I am wasting the time of so great a man. Lucy, don't say such things. My dear young miss, I have the so great pleasure to visit with you because you are so much beloved. They told me you were down in the spirit and that you were of a ghastly pale. But you and I shall show them how wrong they are. How can John Seward know anything of young ladies? He has his madmans to play with and to bring them back to happiness and to those that love them. 
But the young ladies, he has no wife nor daughter, and the young do not tell themselves to the young, but rather to the old like me, who have known so many sorrows and the causes of them. So, my dear, we will send him away to the garden, whilst you and I have a little talk all to ourselves. Have you formed an opinion? I have made careful examination, but there is no functional cause. With you, I agree that there has been much blood lost. It has been, but also is not. I have asked her to send me her maid that I may ask just one or two questions. I know well what she will say. And yet, there is cause. There is always cause for everything. I must go back home and think. Very well. Let us go. I will rest at the hotel. Tomorrow I shall return to Amsterdam. It is there I keep the ancient texts and documents which I need study. In my mind, a theory it forms. And? And brings terror to my heart. What do you make of the marks upon her throat? Marks? Upon her throat? Just over the external jugular vein, there are two punctures. Not large, but they are there. There is no sign of disease, but the edges are white and worn-looking, as if by some regular activity. It might be the means of the manifest loss of blood. But such a thing could not be. The whole bed would be drenched to a scarlet with the blood which the girl has lost. Well? Well, I can make nothing of it. Someday... You will look beyond your so sacred science, friend John. I must go. Come. Shall I have a nurse? We are the best nurses, you and I. You keep watch all night. See that she is well fed and that nothing disturbs her. You must not sleep all the night. Later on we can sleep. I shall be back as soon as possible. And then we may begin. May begin? What on earth do you mean? We shall see. It was a tiresome task. My days were spent at the asylum amongst the castaways of human society, and now my nights were spent sitting and watch over poor Lucy. I must have been dozing, for I hadn't heard his footsteps, but I was conscious of the professor's hand on my shoulder. And how is our patient? Well, when I left her, she was fine. Come, let us see. Together we went into the room. The blind was down, and I went over to raise it gently, whilst Van Helsing stepped with his soft cat-like tread over to the bed. God in himmel! He raised his hand and pointed to the bed, and his iron face was drawn and ashen white. I felt my knees begin to tremble. There on the bed, seemingly in a swoon, lay poor Lucy more horribly white and wan-looking than ever. Even the lips were white, and the gums seemed to have shrunken back from the teeth. Van Helsing raised his foot to stamp in anger, but the instinct of his life and all the long years of habit stood to him, and he put it down again softly. Quick, bring the brandy. I flew to the dining room and returned with the decanter. 
He wetted the poor white lips. He felt her heart, and after a few moments of agonizing suspense, said, It is not too late. It beats, though but feebly. We must be quick. As he spoke, he was dipping into his bag and producing the instruments for transfusion. I had taken off my coat and rolled up my shirt sleeve. Without a moment's delay, we began the operation. Do not stir. I fear that with growing strength she may wake, and that would make danger. Oh, so much danger. But I shall precaution take. I shall give a hypodermic injection of morphia. He proceeded then swiftly and deftly to carry out his intent. The effect on Lucy was not bad, for the fate seemed to merge subtly into the narcotic sleep. It was with a feeling of personal pride that I could see a faint tinge of color steal back into the pallid cheeks and lips. Lucy slept well into the day, and when she woke, she was fairly well and strong, though not nearly so much as the day before. When Van Helsing had seen her, he went out for a walk, leaving me in charge, with strict injunctions that I was not to leave her for a moment. I could hear his voice in the hall, asking the way to the nearest telegraph office. Van Helsing returned in a couple of hours and presently said to me, now you go home. I stay here tonight, and I shall sit up with little miss myself. You and I must watch the case, and she must have none other to know. The next afternoon, I went over to Hillingham and found Van Helsing in excellent spirits, and Lucy much better. Shortly after I had arrived, a big parcel from abroad came for the professor. He opened it with much impressment, assumed, of course and showed a great bundle of white flowers. These are for you, Miss Lucy. For me? Oh, Dr. Van Helsing. Yes, my dear, but not for you to play with. These are medicines. See, I put him in your window. I make pretty wreath and hang him round your neck so that you sleep well. Oh, yes, they, like the lotus flower, make your trouble forgotten. Oh, Professor, I believe you're only putting up a joke on me. Why, these flowers are only common garlic. No trifling with me. I never jest. There is grim purpose in all I do, and I warn you that you do not thwart me. Take care for the sake of others, if not for your own. The professor's actions were certainly odd, and not to be found in any pharmacopoeia that I had ever heard of. First, he fastened up the windows and latched them securely. Next, taking a handful of the flowers, he rubbed them all over the sashes, as though to ensure that every whiff of air that might get in would be laden with the garlic smell. Then, with the wisp, he rubbed all over the jam of the door, above, below, and at each side, and round the fireplace in the same way. It all seemed grotesque to me. Presently, he said, Yes, I know. You think I should be in your asylum, yes? <laughs> Professor, I know you always have a reason for what you do, but this certainly puzzles me. It is well we have no skeptic here, or he would say that you were working some spell to keep out an evil spirit. Perhaps I am. You see, I make the wreath which Miss Lucy is to wear round her neck. We then waited whilst Lucy prepared herself for the night. And when she was in bed, Van Helsing came and fixed the wreath of garlic round her neck. Take care you do not disturb it. And even if the room feel close, do not tonight open the window or the door. 
promise. And thank you both for all your kindness to me. Oh, what have I done to be blessed with such friends? Tonight, you may sleep, child. Good night, Lucy. Good night. As we left the house in my carriage, Van Helsing said, Tonight I can sleep in peace, and sleep I want. Tomorrow in the morning early you call for me, and we come together to see our pretty miss. So much more strong for my spell which I have worked. He seemed so confident that I, remembering my own confidence two nights before, and with the baneful result, felt awe and vague terror. It must have been my weakness that made me hesitate to tell it to my friend. But I felt it all the more, like unshed tears. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. Well, that's it for our creature feature tonight. And I hope you really enjoyed this episode and the movie. If you got any other suggestions, stories, or leads for us to go investigate, send them to kghoulradio at gmail.com. Me and Tommy always like to investigate these great stories. I like to look into them a lot more. And so I hope you join us next week here on Frightening Tales. Frightening Tales.